Hey man, lay back here. I want to tell you about my good friend, Thad Blevins. He works for Wirecut Realtors, ABG Properties in Lexington. He's a full-time licensed realtor that can do real estate deals anywhere in the state of Kentucky. And listen, I don't know how he does it, but this guy can sell a house that he doesn't even own. I've known Thad for 20 years, and I know he'll shoot you straight. He'll get the job done. He's just trying to play some good country music, sell some houses, and treat everybody right. you 20 years is that right it's about 20 years and that's probably a good place to start actually do you remember when we met i remember seeing you play your guitar at the middle school when i was down there doing on some kind of business no that was a while after so when did we meet so i got interested in playing guitar um and tim and Susie were next door neighbors to joyce and john um so mine and your buddy tim managed the radio station oh, yeah. Um, and he had bands coming in the radio station all the time. Um, and one of the things that they were doing was the beating the Grants party with Rob, with Rob McDarlin. So Tim invited me to come just hang out at the beating the Grants party. I was always hanging out at the radio station, but I came to that and, uh, you were, you were playing, you had that guitar right there. Um, and you came up and introduced yourself and Tim, Tim introduced me and Tim said, well, this is Thad. And you know, he's about 11 years old and he's wanting to learn to play guitar. And you looked at me and you said, well, this is what you got to look forward to. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to get any better. (laughs) So, and I met Teresa around the same time also through Tim. Um, at, do you know, I I was talking to her about this last night. If you heard me, the, the cats camp. Oh yeah. She was serving food. Tim said, Dad, this is Chico's wife, Teresa. Teresa, Dad's the only guy I know that's eating more of my food than I have. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that sticks with me, man. I don't, I miss Tim. Tim rolled out everything that came out of his his voice was a one-liner. Yeah. He was really yeah. a pretty creative guy. It, it radio worked for him, man. Absolutely. So you, how long did you work at the radio station? That I'm going to guess here. And how did you get that gig? You know, I can't give you a straight-up answer how I got that gig. I, I wish I'd have thought about this more. I always wanted to do radio, and, was, and there, there would always be a new regime coming to the radio station. I mean, when it was WVKY, it was AM 1270, and it was the same people all the time. But then once it switched over to FM and different people took over, there would, it seems like you would bring in a cast of people, and they'd run the station for a couple of years, and then it would change regimes. So I guess when Tim came in, someone said, y'all listen to the radio station now. It's, it's pretty interesting. And most of the times it wasn't too interesting. But, man, Tim was out there. And I really think I may have just marched down there and said, I want to be on radio, maybe. Really? That's probably how it went down. And they said, you already get a, got a nickname already. Just put him on. Yeah, they, they let him go. <laughs> and, you know, they want to know what your skills are. I, I don't really have any skills. <laughs> I know a lot about music. I can I can talk. So uh, I met him and Moo Man. And so. So you mentioned the the boat story, and I remember that boat being parked by Tim's '57 Chevy outside the house for a while. Yeah, uh, I remember seeing it over there when I'd go up to watch UK games. Can you tell that story? Yeah, we uh, I'd been on the station for probably a year. I don't know, you know, it had gotten pretty popular. We were doing radio, and a lot of people called and listened in. 
And we thought, you know, we need to use our power for good here. So some way through Garrett Roberts, who was a sheriff at the time, they had a program called Coats for Kids. So if you raised a bunch of money, we bought coats to give the kids to wear in the winter. So we thought if we have some sort of fundraiser or fund drive, that what we'll do, and I think Tim came up with most of this stuff, is we're going to put a boat um, south of Louisa about 10 miles down about Chapman, and we'll float that boat from Chapman down to Louisa. And this boat had no uh, no engine or anything. So how did you get from A to Did you paddle? How did you get from A to B? Well, no, it's just the, that's the way the river runs. So oh, we just right. went, went with the current, even though you're going south to north. But once, once you're ready to stop, how do you? You know, we probably had a paddle to try to steer it in. But that was it. So we got the, someone gave us the boat. So if you guys want to do this, here's a boat. <laughs> so I get my buddy John Gostovich, who I was playing with and not trained at the time. And so Gostovich is like, well, we got to paint it. You can't just take that crappy boat. <laughs> so John paints this boat up, and he, he calls it the Born to Boogie, and it's got a Hank Williams Jr. flag on the back, and it's just super cheese. So we throw that thing in, and, and we floated. It probably took three or four hours to float from Chapman down to Louisa. And we had a bunch of sponsors. We raised quite a bit of money for Coach for Kids. It was amazing. That is amazing. I think the boat, I don't know if the boat was stolen or someone took the Hank Jr. flag. I know there was something tragic about something being stolen. And I don't know where the boat is now. Do you know? you have any idea? Man, I I don't have the first clue. Um, a friend of yours, Snake Burton, also plays into the story. Okay. He comes up when he finds out what we're doing. He goes, look, he said, I know you're going to float this boat. He said, do you know if it'll float or not? I said, no, I don't. I have no idea. He said, well, let's take it out to Yatesville at the marina and let's put it in the water and make sure it'll float first because he didn't want me to drown. It's a good plan. Yeah, so we went out there, and, and he helped me put the boat in the water, and it it, it would float. So he was involved. In For a few day. minutes anyway. Yeah, and that's all we need. That's all you, need. <laughs> yeah. you know, one of the greatest parts about that, there's a friend of mine named Cleo. He used to come and watch us play music all the time. He lives at Wallbridge, one of those homes right beside Wallbridge. So as we're floating down under Wallbridge, and I mean, I'm guessing I'm not good, well, maybe 80 feet, 90 feet down to the water because the train bridge goes over there. As we're coming down through that, there's Cleo out on the train bridge with a rod and reel and two <laughs> beers. So he takes the rod and reel and he lowers down the beer as we're driving under. <laughs> we grab the cold beers, we give Theo a thumbs up, and we just kept on going. So. That's one of the best Louisa stories, I think. Yeah, he, he dropped us down a love package. No, something about shooting bottle rockets at you? Yeah, there was kids somewhere between Chapman and Wallbridge, and I guess it would have been Torchlight, an area called Torchlight. As we're going down the river, there's these kids with Roman candles and bottle rockets on the bank, and they just start firing them at us, and they're shooting. And it's just like apocalypse now. <laughs> I mean, I felt like I was going up the Mekong Delta. So, you know, I'm kind of ducking in the boat, and it's funny. Well, you know, John Gostovich always carried this green bag with him. And sure enough, he had Roman candles he with him, too. Yeah, back. he started firing back. <laughs> he really did. So, I mean, the kids were laughing, and we were laughing, and we were shooting at each other. But it was right out of the, out of the movie. So I felt like Martin Sheen. Now, did, isn't there a story with you and Bill Hammond where one of you shot the other one with a bottle rocket at one point? I think the the way it was, Bill shot me right in the face with a Roman candle. Now, it was at a long distance. I don't think he said, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Yeah. But we discovered that if you shot those things, the, the visual was great. But, yeah, I just remember it coming right at me. And things got weird for a while. We did a lot of things at Bill Hammond's. Any lasting damage from the bottle rocket incident? No, no, it, it went away fairly P.T. Allen shot my mom in the head with a BB gun. On purpose? I don't. I really don't know. Wow. She, she had a scar from it until the day she died. Man. 
Uh, PT was a, um, a, ba- a football coach when I was in middle school. I never know he's a football coach. I played for Don Hillman's team, and we were playing against PT's team. And it was in eighth grade. So I ran a play and got knocked down, and I broke my arm. And my arm was really broken horribly. It was like this arm was going the other direction. And I'm laying there in the field. And PT comes up to me and says, I'll cheek your right. Get up, buddy. It's <laughs> like, no, coach, I'm not all right. My arm's going, my arm's going this way now. But he, he helped me get over it. And the tragedy of that whole story is my football number was number two, and I love my jersey. And after I'd broken my arm and went to the hospital, someone took my jersey, and I never did get it back. You never played football again after that? No, that was it. Mom said, you know, you probably don't need to do that. What uh, what position did you play? I was a running back and a linebacker. You're that, you're that mean. No, I wasn't no. very good. <laughs> I think I was a thinking man's football player. Yeah. And there's not it's much. It's not great if you're a linebacker. No. It's all about timing, right? It, it is. And and I think Don, because I was playing for Don, and I love Don Hillman, and he wanted me to be more of a linebacker mentality, but I just didn't have it. Maybe you, he had my arm broken. Did you have your hair under a helmet back then? What little I had. You couldn't have long hair in school then. That was, you had the fro thing, didn't you? Well, I mean, it was my hair was curly on its own. Huh. So, yeah, I had as much as you could have then. So, over the years, you and I have talked anecdotally about your parents. Yeah. But that that's about it. Yeah. Um, tell me about growing up uh, and your musical influences and how. Okay, so my dad is a great bluegrass banjo player. He's a really, really good guitar player. He was an excellent fiddle player. He could play upright bass. He could play pretty much anything, any stringed instrument that, that he had access to. And and some people just have a touch on an instrument, and Dad had that. Everything he played was better than how I could play it. He was just really that good. And what really amazed me most about him was his fiddle playing because he would play a square dance contest. He moved to Columbus when he was young, and hillbillies in Columbus all gathered in the south end there, and he would fiddle at square dance contest, and then it just goes on and on forever. And he played with a Cajun feel, and I don't know where that came from because my dad's never been to Louisiana. I was thinking about this the other day. There was a guy on um, on the Opry back then, uh, something Newman, I can't think of his name. But he was a sort of a Cajun fiddle player, and I wonder if Dad didn't hear him on the Opry and that kind of influenced the way he played. But he, he could play banjo like Ralph Stanley and fiddle like, like a Cajun. This, so, this is pretty dark, it's, but it's the chicory. Good. So you didn't blend this? I didn't do anything. Okay. It came out of that can right there. Oh, that's good. That's really good. You dig it? Yeah, that's, awesome. that's good work. Awesome. I'm, I make coffee pretty stout anyway. Well, that's the way it should be. Otherwise, yeah. what's the point? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, Dad, excellent musician like that. Mom, you know, Mom and Dad would always go out and play music together, and Mom just, I think, needed to keep an eye on Dad. So, Mom had a snare drum that she would play brushes on. So, she was a bluegrass drummer. But really, that was just her way to make sure she was with Dad. She was a bluegrass drummer. Yeah. Was, that's not a joke. No, that's she was self-proclaimed. I'm a bluegrass drummer, and she would just go and just play. She music. might have been the first one. And eh, there were probably more, but she would just play brushes and just keep it a little beat. Huh. So it was interesting. So they had a bluegrass group, or just two of them? Yeah, they well, there was it was weird. They had a band for a while. It was called the Bluegrass Drifters, and I don't know who was really in it, but there was just this core of musicians who would meet every weekend, either at my house or their house or someone else's house. Same bunch of guys, probably five or six different dudes, and they would play for a long time. They would crank up about 8 o'clock at night and go to 1 and 2 in the morning. I miss stuff like that being a thing. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. 
And looking back, I didn't know how cool it was because no, I remember man. going. That's with unique them. to where we're from. Yeah, I would go with them, and I would play guitar up to about eleven o'clock, and I'm just starting to get tired. And you know, they're cranked up at this point, so I just sneak off somewhere and go to sleep, and they just keep going. Huh? That's awesome. I'm jealous that you grew up that way. Well, it, it was cool. So your dad owned or managed the bar at the time in Fort Gay? He, he didn't own it. It was owned by a guy named Willie Crabtree, but he had hired dad to run it. So probably about 68, I, I know it was 68 that dad was running the bar. So I would have been four or five years old. I stayed back home because the bar was in Fort Gay, West Virginia. I'm back home on Twin Branch because my grandma lived there too. So I'm staying mostly with my grandma. Every now and then I go stay with mom and dad at the bar because they had an apartment upstairs. He runs out for a while. They uh, He has a lot of bluegrass music on the weekends there. So we're going to go into the, the Ralph story. Yeah, let's know do about it. it. So um, Carter Stanley had died, which uh, fortunately was, I actually got to see the Stanley brothers. Wow. Probably not long before Carter died at all. They played in Louise at the Garden Theater. I don't really remember it. I was too young to real. I just remember seeing a stage with some guys on it. I didn't know anything about it. So after Carter dies, Ralph keeps it going. It's Ralph Stanley and the Quench Mountain Boys. And, you know, they're playing anywhere. So dad had them play that bar there a bunch of times. You know, they played every school. They play, It seems like they played flat gap school all the time. But dad had them coming to the bar. And so as a warm-up band, these two kids had been coming over wanting to play music at the bar, and they were actually too young to get in. And it was Ricky Skaggs and Keith Whitley. And they had just sort of teamed up and were playing some music together. Keith was from uh, Sandy Hook. Of course, Ricky's from Mount Cordell. So dad lets them come in to open up for the Stanley Brothers. And the way I understand the story, I wasn't there. I guess the Stanley Brothers are late getting there. Well, not the Stanley Brothers, but Ralph is late getting there. And so they play kind of an extra long set. And, you know, they can just slay the Stanley Brothers stuff. That's what they did. Yeah. So Ralph rolls in and hears them and is like, hey, you guys are pretty good. <laughs> and so I guess he lures them into the band. And, and they sort of met right there in Fort Gay at Dad's Bar. I had always heard the story that they met in Fort Gay. Yeah. And I don't think I knew growing up that your dad was managing it at the time. <clears throat> But you're talking about it at a documentary, and I thought, do those dots connect? Yeah, and you know, I never really sat down and put it all together, but then something happened, and it clicked. And I guess there's a book out right now that someone's written about Ralph. Maybe it's been out a few years. But it, it documented, it says, you know, in Fort Gay is where they heard him. And you kind of put it all together and said, well, that was a dad's bar. And That's amazing. Yeah, it is. We, uh, Which I can't find them now. Mom had tons of photos from that show. And, you know, Keith and, Keith's got these big old horn rim glasses on. Ricky's just real thin, and they just look like two goober kids. But they were really good even then. No kidding. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. that's a. I mean, in country music, that's a famous story, like in the canon of country music story. Yeah, I guess it, it should and be. It should be. Yeah. And your dad was managing bar. Yeah, my dad did that. Good job, Dad. That's a, kind of, that's a claim to fame, man. Butterfly flaps his wings in China. I don't know what that means. I've never read that parable. Oh, yeah? No, what is That's it? That's how you get hurricanes in the United States. Good. I'm glad, <laughs> glad to know that. <laughs> um, so your dad played bluegrass, played fiddle, played banjo, had a good touch. I, I'm, I'm envious of people that play those bowed fretless instruments that way because I think, especially if you do, do that when you're young, you get better ears that way than yeah. playing anything else you could play. I think so. Cause Rachel plays fiddle. She right? plays fiddle and her ears are phenomenal. That, you know, that's amazing. I, it never happened for me. Yeah. I, I couldn't pull up the pitch and dad yeah. was on every time. Yeah. You play a good steel player though. What? 
I said, you're a pretty good steel player. <laughs> you never heard me play steel. I've heard you play steel. I'm not very good. You're self-deprecating is what you are. Well, I'm just factual. <laughs> and you know, if it's one of those things that you got to play all the time. Yeah. If I sat down and played steel every day, I could probably sit in the background and be very low and not bother anybody. But then when you're around really good steel players, you go, oh, that's... Oh, that's- no, I... I feel that way about music in general when I'm around good players. Yeah, and I, that's just natural, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I. But you're. It seems to me like you're pretty good with the resonator too. I remember seeing you and Teresa down at the pool, and you just played the resonator the whole yeah, time. Yeah, not so bad. You know, anything where you got a bar and it's slicky and you can be off pitch very easy is difficult. We well, just vibrato. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you just do that, Mike Campbell. Do it really wide. I, I, my slide playing comes from Rick Richards at Georgia Satellites because he just he's just real raw and you know there's real precise slide playing like Derek Trucks does yeah you know? and then there's what Rick Richards does yeah and that's where I aim it's that's just a, I want to be like real that. emotional just visceral it is yeah and just that's a good way to put it that's the only kind of slide I'll ever be able to play yeah well it's Johnny Winter it all that's the way Johnny Winter plays so yeah so you. Grew up playing bluegrass with your dad here and that. When did you start getting into rock and roll? Well, you know, I got to say that dad really liked Johnny Cash, too. Yeah. And so we had these Johnny Cash records with Luther Perkins just playing these. You know, he played very simple. It's almost like he was a bass player. and He just played a lot of those big string notes. So I always had that in my background, too. I loved electric guitar the way Luther played. But that was the extent of what I was into. And I moved to, uh, they decided they would build Yatesville Lake, so we had to leave that area, and I moved to High Bottom. And my neighbor across the street was a guy named Jeff Rogers, who's still just one of my best friends in the world. I'm not going to just let that slip by. Okay. Them building Yatesville Lake meant you're, you were displaced. Yeah, yeah, we had to move. I'm going to start the sandwich maker. All right, please do. <laughs> wonder how many amps that pulls. I don't know. Oh, you're running I, through a firm in those. Firm. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Keep the voltage constant on it. That's great. Uh, yeah, when that light turns green, let me know. I can't see it. Which one? There's oh, a, on the cooker? Yeah. Yeah, I will. All right. So your family was displaced because Kentucky decided to build the Yatesville Lake where your house was. Well, it was the federal government decided to do it. Federal government. Yeah, okay. Yeah. They came around probably in the early 70s. Was that eminent domain? They just push you out, or yeah. did they pay to build you a new house? Yeah, well, all of those are true. I mean, they came in the early 70s and said, we're going to do this. And when Carter got elected, Carter said, this is a dumb idea. We're not going to build Yatesville Lake. So they cut the funding. But then I guess when Reagan got elected, is that right? No, I'm, I'm telling the story wrong. Maybe Carter was one of the presidents who paid the money. It had to have been Carter. Sounds like Carter. Because that's when we left. It was in the seven, early, early mid-70s. So, yeah, they said, well, you're going to have to go. And lots of people who lived at Twin Brand said, well, we don't want to go. And I said, well, I don't have a choice. We'll put the money in a bank account in your name, and we'll still knock your house down. So <laughs> so they bought our place, and they gave us a moving allowance, and we went from there to High Bottom. So you moved to High Bottom, and that's when the Led Zeppelin thing started creeping in. Yeah, that's when, like I said, my friend Jeff Rogers, who was from Columbus, who was really into rock and roll. ACDC and Zeppelin and lots of things like that, and he introduced me to that. I was like, "Wow, this is a, this is another way to think about things." Do you remember the first time you heard Led Zeppelin? Actually, I do. I do remember the first time. Tell that story. Well, and two, I'm sure I heard Zeppelin on on you know on radio or whatever. But yeah. the first time I ever bought a Zeppelin album, where I could really set it and listen to it, I go over to there was a guy in Fort Gay named Charlie Daughtery. Are you familiar with him at uh-uh. all? 
he ran just a pawn shop, a thrift shop. He sold albums. He sold everything. He had a wall full of albums. So I go over there, and I'm going through stuff, and I see a Led Zeppelin. I was like, well, this is a band I've heard of. This is probably something I need to hear. And it was Led Zeppelin two, And it's in the wrong cover even. But I bought it. Probably gave a dollar for it. I go home, and I listen to Led Zeppelin two, and I was like, oh, my God. How do you do this? This It was the most awesome thing I'd ever heard. Long about that same time period, a friend of mine, Brad Maynard, had loaned me an eight-track tape of Hendrix's first album. And it was just a mind-blower. And really, if you go back and listen to the first Hendrix record, keep in mind, I really like Luther Perkins and that kind of sound. Hendrix is not that far removed from that. He's playing a lot of single-note stuff. He's playing on big strings a lot. He's very melodic. I was like, man, this, this makes a lot of sense, but where did it come from? But in the same breath, Hendrix goes off on these crazy tears, too. But it was easy to transition from Johnny Cash to Hendrix for me. I never knew you were a Hendrix guy. I, I thought you didn't like Strat players. You, know, like Hendrix. you know, at that point, when I wanted a Strat because Joe Perry had a Strat, so I wanted a Strat. So you were an Aerosmith fan before you were a Zeppelin fan? No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I got the Zeppelin thing, and I was just blown away by it. Like, this is, this is the holy grail of all rock music, and no one could ever touch it. Musically, they were all such good musicians. And like I said, Hendrix just was doing stuff that I didn't think anyone could even do on guitar. But when I started to really get into songs, and and, and here's how this happened. I'm sure you've seen the ads for Columbia House, where if you send in 11 cents, you get 15 cents. Oh, no, listen, my brother had a, a, basically a business with Columbia House. Yeah. He'd sign up 100 of his friends. I mean, he had 1,000 records when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, through all, He signed up for every club coming and going, and it was awesome. Yeah, well, that, that's why I know all the music I do is that stuff. Well, that's what I did. And, you know, you don't have any Spotify. There's no internet. There's nothing. No. So I thought, well, Aerosmith's cool. I've heard them on the radio. So I bought three Aerosmith albums. I got Get Your Wings, Toys and Attic, and Rocks. And I also bought a bunch of Ted Nugent records because I'd heard Cat Scratch Fever on the radio. So I bought a bunch of, excuse me, Nugent. And I didn't really know what any of those sounded like. And they all come in. I was like, oh, Aerosmith's for me. I mean, there's something spoke to me about them. Their songwriting, their guitar playing. So I wanted to be Joe Perry. I would stand in front of the mirror and try to figure out how to stand like Joe Perry. <laughs> Did you figure it out? No, not really. <laughs> but I tried. I even tried to hold my jaw like Joe Perry. When I had pictures made, I would try to get this vein to flex like, <laughs> like Joe Perry. I'm not even lying. I loved it. That's awesome, man. And then you find out when you get older, a lot of the good guitar parts are Brad Whitford. But I didn't know. I thought Joe Perry played everything. I mean, he's a good player. He just he doesn't have the mind that Brad does. No, you're right. He's just all feel and touch. Yeah, Joe and is. sometimes that's solid gold. Yeah, right. So when you get live bootleg and you can tell Brad's on this side and Joe's on this side, you go, oh, that was Brad playing that part. Yeah. Yeah, love, love, love Aerosmith. And you were in a Skinner then, too, at all? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, when you'd sent me a message the other day saying that you thought that people kind of blew past Skinner because they were so popular. Well, I, there's this thing about Skinner where it's like, Skinner's like church, man. Like people in the South, it's like, it's cliche. It's like uh, yeah. there's a Kid Rock thing and it's on the Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial. And it's like, I th people, and it, there's always a drunk guy at the concert, the old saw, the pre bird. Yeah. Like, if you seriously go back and dig into those records at, like, a good set of headphones and listen to them close, they're one of the most incredibly just musical bands Absolutely. ever. Absolutely. Ever. And, and the way the way Ed King played, the way he phrased stuff, slow, listen to the record, slow him down, and listen to the way he, he would do those bends. It's it's not what you think when you listen to it casually. No, you're right. You can't, you can, I mean, I don't. you can know his parts, but you can't play them like that. Yeah. I, well, I can't, I don't even know him. But yeah. I certainly couldn't play them. 
But you're right, and it's not Leonard Skinner's fault that they got so popular and became so cliche. It's yeah. not their fault. No. They're great. I'll put Skinner up against anybody. Yeah. If you watch the Freebird movie, have you ever seen it? I didn't know it was a Freebird movie. Oh, go back. This came out probably 10 years ago. It's just a nice little documentary shows them playing in England a lot. And you watch that and you go, my gosh, they're great. Well, I, I just, I loved Ed's playing because Ed, he didn't, Ed didn't come from a, a rock background. He came from a blues background. Um, so if you listen to like solo in Sweet Home Alabama, he's not doing that E minor pentatonic thing like no. you'd expect. Like what I do. Or what I would do or yeah. what 90% of guitar players would do. You're right. It's, he's highlighting the chord tones and he's doing that mixolydian thing and it's real major and, and bright and happy sounding but it's real bluesy and all kinds of touch and it's nobody's played like that quite since i yeah. i'm not much for the current iteration of skinner really i saw it and it was like going to a, a pro wrestling match yeah it really was, it it was is. there was a lot of flashing and bright things and i don't know it was weird yeah i, I watched um a few years ago uh rosington and Gaines uh did a uh a lesson video for Guitar World on how to play Sweet Home Alabama, and they did every section of the song. They don't play it right. They no, don't play it like a record. I probably can't. I probably can't. That's and, right. And Ed King just passed away here not too long ago. I know. Ago. I know. It's been on my mind. Yeah, but he was he was brilliant. I got to tell you, though, I think maybe some of my favorite Skinner is the Give Me Back My Bullet records, which is two of them. It's just Collins and, and Rosington. Well, that's that Gibson. Yeah. That's that fat sound that you and they're like. just really stripped down and it's yeah. really good that stuff's great too they I, they do the old uh what's it the old gray whistle test during that period and it's just those two yeah it's brilliant yeah i mean those were all those records those early records start to finish are like that yeah I, anyway yeah. go listen to skinner yeah and mean it <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't fool around don't listen to the hits you'll find a song called uh coming home and listen to it and try not to cry yeah it's right be beautiful i i think I mean, it's overplayed, but it's not as cliche as others. But Curtis Lowe's a great song. It really is. Great song. I used to pull, we played it in Night Train, and, and Bob sang Oh, the, that's right. Bob sang the crap. I forgot me. about that. Yeah, it was one of her better songs. So, Hendrix, Skinner, Nugent, Zeppelin. Yeah. And were you, like, when you were hearing this stuff, did you try to learn those records? Yeah. Especially the Aerosmith stuff, because it was real riff heavy and not super hard. And I remember learning, uh, there's one, what's called, uh, oh, it's on rocks. Go go with me. Help me with some rock songs. You don't know what to do. Rocks not, is all you. All right. So there's a song on there that I can play. I'll learn to play it. And, you know, it's, it's just a bar chord riff stuff. And I remember playing it over and over and over in my bedroom. And I remember Dad coming in one time and going, you know, you listen to a lot of stuff that I don't really care for. He said, that's pretty good. He said, I kind of like that. And it was a little Brad Woodford's guitar part on this song, and I can't think of the name of it. It saved my life. But I thought, well, that's cool, Dad. But Dad would always say, because I was, you know, trying to play Hendrix, whatever. He said, you really need to play simple. He said, when you're trying to play all this really far, he would call it far out stuff. He said, no one can understand that. So you should always play simple. Man, I, I dig the far out stuff. And when I first started playing music, I was like, well, look up in the dictionary. Who are the best guitar players? Hendrix. Page. Well, I'm going to learn that stuff before yeah. I learn G, C, and D, right? Yeah. And I regret taking that approach i mean i i still love that music because of how much i listened to it then but i feel like i've been playing guitar for 20 years um and now i'm circling back 
and I'm trying to learn the stuff that I tried to learn whenever I first picked it up. But I'm trying to dig deeper and and really try to get it, like the Skinnerd stuff, the way that I didn't and couldn't because I wasn't old enough, hadn't lived yet, didn't yeah. know how to listen to a record. Yeah. Do you ever do that? Yeah, I do. You know, and a lot of the things that you just mentioned, you're talking about Hendrix and Page, and I, and I really like Michael Schenker when he's in UFO. Oh, yeah. And I almost think that you almost have to be a guitar player to really get off on that stuff because you know technically what they're doing. You're going, man, that's brilliant. So yeah. I wonder how Joe Smith, who doesn't play guitar, you know, how does Michael Schenker affect him? Do, do they get the same thing out of it? He doesn't, Joe, who doesn't play guitar, doesn't listen to UFO. He listens to Aerosmith. Well, there, there you go. Answered, <laughs> took care of that question. And he probably owns everything from pump on. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's always hard for me to think of how guitar-oriented rock affects non-guitar players and why they like certain parts of it and why they don't. Hey, it doesn't make sense to me. You can like stuff on a surface level just for the way it makes you feel. I guess that's it, isn't it? Right. And then you get as a guitar player, you can listen deep and really get into it. But even even us are hooked because of how it makes us feel to begin with, same that, as anybody else. That's true. But when I see these discussions start up, I said, well, who's the better band, Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin? And I'm just going, all right, this is not even a valid argument. No. Led Zeppelin is head and shoulders over Pink Floyd, even though I really like Pink Floyd. Yeah. But, I mean, you can't compare those two things. It's like comparing a, a badminton player to a weightlifter. It's just that doesn't work. But yeah, no, I agree. They're, I mean, similar era, but apples and oranges. Yeah. In Europe, in the documentary, which, holy cow, it's got like 1.5 thousand views the first week he uploaded it after everybody's already seen it at various venues. Because everybody loves that curry. That's why. I don't think that's what it is. Yeah, I think it but is. he's pretty lovable. Oh, yeah. I love it. No joke. Uh, but uh, you were talking about as laid back, kind of pushing that 70s sound. There are elements of the 70s I can take or leave. But what I will say about the 70s is um, that was the best era for rock songwriting uh, from arrangement standpoint, from the chords that those guys are playing. People haven't played like that before or since. I agree. I, I had this factoid in my head, and now I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm still going to throw it out there. In 1976, within a two-week period, Farewell to Kings came out, Rocks came out, and I think uh, the first ACDC, what, 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 no, High voltage. Yeah. Within two weeks. Yeah. It's like, Pretty good couple of weeks at the record Yeah, and store. if you want to bounce up, you know, a year on either side of that, look at everything that came out. It's just amazing for guitar, rock stuff. There you go. Zeppelin's cranking it out. Bloister Colt's putting it out. Everybody. Rush is peaking, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, but I, th I think people who were kids then were beneficiaries of the fact, and now we suffer from the fact that, when a record came out, if there was a band that you liked, you would go to the record store. You couldn't wait till release day. You went to the record store. You bought the album. You came home, put on the record player. You invited your buddies over. It was like going to Blockbuster and renting a movie. Yeah. You rented the record, and it was an event. Oh, um, and so bands knew that when they were writing records. So they cared how they were written, what they sounded like, what the production values were right. People people listen different, so they made records different. Song order was really Song important. Song order was important. There was a lot of concept records in the yeah. 70s. Um, and I think now we suffer from the fact that music is... People, I mean, pe bands still make albums just because it's the most logical way to 
from an artistic standpoint, not necessarily from a commercial standpoint. Um, but I think what we suffer from now is like, you've got your $150 AirPods that sound like garbage that you got in your ears that you're listening to your playlist while you cut the grass. It's soundtrack. Music now is background noise. It's not an event. People don't go buy records and sit and listen to them. I know I sound like you kids get off my lawn, but the point is, because of that, people don't care what stuff sounds like the way that they used to. Well, when you're in the studio, too, and if you've got a good engineer and a good, especially when you do your mastering and mixing, what do you mix them for? Are you still mixing for a guy with six but nine Krakos in a in a Dodge? Right. No. Are you mixing for earbuds? You're mixing for earbuds. Or someone just listening on the phone, and you got to be cognizant of that. Right. You and no, I, and it's I don't know that it's anybody's fault in the actual music industry. It's just, and you can't blame producers and engineers from approaching no, things that way. Absolutely, because those people are who buy it, and that's because if you put, um, that's why all that all, all that '70s stuff has been remastered. Because they want to make it listenable for people now. Yeah. Um, the way people listen to music now, whenever you put on some of those early records and try to listen to them that way, they don't sound good. Because you're not listening to them how they're supposed to be listened to. Yeah, you're right. I love hanging out up here and just playing all that old stuff for this receiver. Oh, yeah, because that's that's its wheelhouse. Yeah, I, I've got my shag carpet and my lights that match the receiver, and I'm you're, just time traveling up here. You're doing your part. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so... You feel like out of those bands, Zeppelin probably shaped you the most as a player? Probably so. I hear that a lot. Especially when I got a little bit of skill. Yeah. Because, you know, at first I couldn't really play that way, but yeah. When when I say I I think like Paige a lot, that sounds very arrogant. But just the way that Paige approaches some things, I do that too. And it's just from listening to him so much. Things that are just my stock licks are a lot of Jimmy Page things. You know, me and four billion other guitar players say that. Well, I don't. It, to me, it doesn't sound arrogant. Page was a monster guitar player, but he was pretty sloppy. And so am I too. I'm yeah, a sloppy player. But it's it's that's that. If you're listening to it for that, you're missing the point. Yeah, yeah you're right. Oh, it's easy to come down. Like, oh, Page, blah 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 blah. I remember. Yeah. Do you, are you familiar with a guy named Dave Angstrom? No. Dave Angstrom was a brilliant Lexington guitar player. And uh, I'm going to get late 80s early. I had a band called Super Fuzz. Oh, Super Fuzz. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I remember those guys. And so Angstrom, you know, uh, he was in a band called Black Cat Bone before that. Okay. And he, like, he knew every page week. And I remember getting those records and going, man, so this is how you do it. And this is how you play some new page weeks. And he was playing them honestly, too. I mean, you could tell that was just ingrained and that's the way he played. And hearing Angstrom a lot helped me cop some of those page weeks. So I'm getting them almost secondhand through him. That's kind of cool, though, because then it makes it a little bit more yours. Yeah, in a way. Right. This is the Dave Angstrom version of Jimmy Page. Now I'm doing it. That's, That's like uh, Dave Grissom talking about that Birds record uh, where he would listen to those solos that were played with the B-Bender. Yeah. He didn't know what a B-Bender was and never heard of so one. So he's doing it with these. So he's doing it with his hands. And that's how he developed the style of being the kind of player he is. Uh, is listening to those records trying to do stuff without the tools, right? Because he's really good at having an open string and droning that and bending something yeah, else. He's a master. Yeah, really. And that's where that comes from. And you don't have that now because you can look up YouTube and watch the birds. Yeah, and go, oh, well, this is how you do it. Right. Ignorance was bliss. It had its benefits. Yeah. Um, so, but you don't like the Eagles. I do not like them. The most 70s band of any 70s band. Are they? I'm not saying, when I think of the 70s, I think of them. I mean, that whole literary rock thing, 
That's what everybody thinks of, which is why you don't like them, right? That's not why I don't like Because they stole Graham Parsons Thunder? Yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> no, I tell, tell me that story. Well, it is. Uh, the, you know, from listening to Jimmy Page, and I'm just, Page walks on water for me. So somewhere I read that he goes, you know, there's a guy named Clarence White, and I really like what Clarence White does. So I, go, no, I need to go find out about Clarence White. <laughs> so I get this Bird's record, and I hear this stuff, and if, if you really listen to the live Bird's record, Untitled is the name of it, that's where Paige got a bunch of his stuff is he's playing Clarence Watwicks. And I don't mean just the beat band. You know, Clarence is a bluegrass player. And just the, the way he'll lead into certain things is bluegrass stuff. But Paige took that and ran it through a Marshall and Les Paul. So it's like, oh, my God, well, this makes a lot of sense. Start listening to the birds, fall in love with them, the whole country rock thing. And, you know, it sort of brought me back home because I'd been a Johnny Cash guy. And then went off on my Zeppelin and Hendrix experience, and then all of a sudden you get to come back home and go, oh, well, country music is cool, and it's okay. You heard it different, though. What do you mean? Heard, heard that music differently? Yeah, Absolutely. when you came back to it. Absolutely. So, you know, through the birds, you find out about Graham, and then you start digging all through all the Graham records, and you go, you know, when Graham did this, really, as far as I'm concerned, at least in my limited knowledge, no one else was doing that. Because Graham had a rock and roll soul, but he's singing really hardcore country. You know, and he's taking a lot of drugs, and he's psychedelic, and he's wearing all these spacey suits, but he's singing really hardcore country. And they, he starts that genre, in my opinion. Now, there'll be people argue with me, and that's fine. I could be wrong. But in my heart, it's Graham. And so all of a sudden, the Eagles get really famous for doing that sort of stuff without the depth that Graham had, in my opinion. I mean, the Eagles are on some take it easy. Or that's there was one song that really drove me crazy with the Eagles. Peaceful, easy feel. Yeah, that's easy listening music. I just thought that was the worst song ever. And I just remember being at a party one time, and this guy is so involved in listening to and singing along with Peaceful, Easy Feel, and I thought this is ridiculous. And I just think that Graham and they everyone got shorted out on that deal. But what about you? Still, you got Life in the Fast Lane, Hotel California. Well, Joe Walsh is in that. Yeah, I'm a little more forgiving with Joe Walsh. Yeah. Um, victim of love, heartache tonight. Yeah, you know, no. that's a good pop song. It is a good pop song. Yeah, and they were fine. You know, and now I've, I've got this thing where I say I hate the Eagles so much, so I have to hate them. Yeah, they wrote some fine pop songs, but I'm I don't own an Eagles record. Yeah, wait a minute, I do own an Eagles record. I've got their greatest hits. You and everybody else. Yeah, you have to have that. They give it to you. I agree about Joe Walsh. It, it went somewhere else. They got a little more credible with me with Joe Walsh. So is there, I remember when we were on the bus to New Orleans and I had an iPod full of songs. I was real proud of my music collection. I got a couple stories about the music collection, actually. So we, uh, <clears throat> my brother moved to California in 2003 and he had this vast CD collection and I would always go raid his CD folders when he was gone to college or wherever he was. Um, and then one day we were driving up Five Forks Hill to church and my mom was always just observing whatever is outside the car on the side of the road. I mean, we'd be driving through anywhere USA and she'd say, look, Fab, Cracker Barrel. I mean, she just, she liked to read the road signs and it was, everything was novelty to her. She was, she was, she had that like young, innocent kind of perspective on everything. Um, but we were on our way to church. We were already late. And she saw this this stuff sitting on the side of the road. She said, Stuart, stop the car. And I'm like, oh, we're late. Let's go. 
He's like, stop the car. I mean it. What is that? I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So we pull over on the side of the road. And there's probably, I, there's big album folders. There's probably 300 CDs in there. And it's all like Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, some band doing ACDC covers that was doing them better than ACDC did with Brian Johnson. I, and I never figured out who that band was. And then there was Joe Satriani Records, Steve I Records, Rush Records. There's a lot of bands I ended up getting into and wearing the records out because mom caused us to stop on the side of the road and we, we picked up those CDs. So if you're in Louisa and you're listening and you were having an argument with your girlfriend and your CDs went out the window, thank you because you changed my life. That's super cool. Um, so before Dave moved to California, mom had the computer lab uh, at the elementary school. She was the computer lab teacher. And all 30 of those computers had CD burners in them. So we took both of our entire collections before we went to California. And we spent like a good 72 straight hours just burning hundreds and hundreds of CDs for each other. So he would have what I had when he left, and I would have, have what he had when he left. And I've still got all that stuff. That's cool. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, I guess that's against the law, but I don't know. It feels like nothing compared to the way the world is now. No, no, it's mild. Yeah. But I don't know, that, that was fun to look back on. So anyway, so I handed you the iPod with all my music on it from, from what I could fit of those records on the bus going to New Orleans. And you went through it and you're like, man, you got some absolute garbage on here. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, you got some good stuff too. And I was like, well, thanks. But it it's always been a little bit of a curiosity to me. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it. What's the common thread for you? that goes through different songs and different bands and different genres that makes you like it or not? You know, I don't know. I, I know that's a hard question, but have you ever thought about it? I have thought about it. And um, and it really doesn't matter if it's a bluegrass song or a Johnny Cash song or a Buck Owen song, an Aerosmith song or whatever, or a cake song. It's hard to say. Uh, I'd sent, actually, you familiar with Webb Wilder? No. Webb Wilder put out a bunch of records mainly in the late 80s, early 90s. So I I'd, I got to go see Webb Wilder, and he had Donnie playing guitar, and I stayed around after the show, and Donnie actually came out and talked to me. So Donnie's playing through a couple of high watts, and he's just a really good guitar. You can tell he's a page guy, too, and just a great player. And I was just honored to talk to him. I was just kind of dumbfounded. I was like, oh, well, you're Donnie Roberts, you know, one of those. And he was so sweet, and he didn't talk to me. So fast forward to now. Donnie gets, he's not playing guitar now. He moved to Arizona and now I think he's up around um, Oregon. And I, I asked to be his friend on Facebook and, and get to talking to him. And we become pretty good buddies. And I'm just honored to know him. So he watches a few videos I put out and he was complimenting me. He said, Some of the things you do really move my monkey bone. And I know exactly what he means. You just hear a riff or something that just, you go, Oh, man. And, that, and that's what it is. And I, I can't describe it any better than that. And it doesn't matter what genre it is. There are just some things and some chord progressions or just some sounds that just grab you. And I wish I could give it a better description. I think Donnie's as close as you can get. To me, there's a rawness and a hardness and a, almost a heaviness to stuff that you like, even if it's bluegrass. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. I don't seem to go for the softer things. Yeah, like peaceful, easy feeling. No, I do not go. I will <laughs> tell you though, I think maybe one of the most beautiful songs ever written, and I can just listen to it and cry. If no one's around, I'll probably cry every time I listen to it. Is uh, if I were a carpenter, the Johnny Cash. Version. Oh yeah, 
I mean, if I'm by myself listening to that, I'm crying. It's, it's just, still heavy when Johnny sings it, though. You know, it is. You're right. Yeah. I guess that's what it is. But yeah. it really moves me. It's so pretty. But, yeah. But, yeah, they're just, I don't know. What's that mean? We're in trouble. Where were we? We're talking about monkey bones. and Monkey bones. And uh, Johnny Cash making us cry. Yeah. And I said, you still like Johnny Cash because even when it's pretty, it's still heavy. Yeah, it is. That record right. he made with... Uh, Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin. Golly. Uh, is one of the heaviest things I've ever heard in my life. You know, um, the guy who engineered that, and the way I understand the story, had a whole lot to do with that record, is a guy named David Ferguson. Yeah, he did the Tyler records. Well, he just did my He record. did yours. Yeah. That's crazy. And so we're sitting there, and you know, me and Dave don't always see eye to eye on some things. And the whole time I'm saying, well, Dave, I don't think I really want to do this part. In the back of my head, I'm going, he did this joint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't talk to Dave Ferguson like that. Let's just try it, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he really gets the accolades he needs to for that cash comeback stuff. But no I, the way I understand it, Dave Ferguson made that stuff happen. Rick huh. Rubin's name's on it, but I think Dave was the guy on it. Rick has made some great records. Oh, and, and I'm not taking away from him. He's anybody. made some iffy records, too. He's not afraid to take a chance, evidently. No. I, I, I have you heard the story about his, his whole production thing? How he sits on the couch and just gets up and lets the band know if they do something cool. No, it's just kind of like he just kind of fades into the background and lets people jam and tries to kind of draw out whatever it is about them that he thinks is quality. And he kind of did that with Johnny Cash too. I mean, they they you, do you know the story about them getting together before they made that record? No. So my understanding, Johnny wanted to make another. I mean, serious record, um, and you know, at the age he was, and so Rick took it as his mission to kind of help Johnny find his way again. Yeah. Um. So they just sat in the living room, and Johnny just played and sang for hours and hours, and they tried to go back through Johnny's old stuff and try to kind of reconnect with his with his identity because I guess Rick and Johnny both felt like he'd kind of lost his way. Uh, and to just try to find the right headspace to make that record. And they did. Oh, absolutely. They did. And, you know, if you look at, at Johnny's career, and I, I don't know if Columbia dropped him or not, but he was doing some horrible material. Yeah, he was. I mean, it, it, it was a shame. But, yeah, Rick brought him back and said, this is Johnny Cash. Yeah. Mr. Cash. Thank God for Rick Rube. Yeah, no kidding. That that needed to happen. Yeah. So Johnny goes out his last years with the respect he deserved. And, and then Dave made it sound like it was supposed to. Yeah, yeah, Dave did a fine job with it. Well, let's talk about your record. So, first question is, how far is it from Mossy Jaw to Hickman Holler? You can't even get there. <laughs> you have to go somewhere else and then go <laughs> okay. from Mossy Jaw. It's it's quite a quite a distance. You know, I uh, made my first little record in uh, Wattsburg with Kenny Miles and Hayden Miles, and they got a little studio called Fat Baby Studio, which is brilliant. And we just go up there. I go up with a song idea. We'd beat around on it. Kenny would turn it into something good. We get about two takes. Well, this sounds good. Let's move on. So I put out the first little laid back record. And it's it's cool. There's some cool moments on it. I love that record. I listen to it all the time. Are you kidding? Yeah. Well, I'm glad somebody is. So then, you know, B. May, uh, Hickman Hall decides that they want me to do a record in Nashville. So they roll out the A-listers. And I go down and record it to Butcher Shop with Dave Ferguson. And it's a whole different ball game. And then to make things really interesting, 
uh, six days before we start, I cut my thumb like really bad. It was on a Wednesday, and I'm peeling an apple, and I slice it. I can't hold a pick, and it's six days before I'm going to record. So I'm like, well, what do I do here? I've got this studio lined up. I've got musicians coming in. Would it be a courtesy just to say, look, I've cut my thumb. I can't do this. Let's put it off. But then I look and go, school's getting ready to start. Everything's on the table. So I start eating everything I can that's got vitamin E in it. This is no joke. I eat so many kiwi. <laughs> kiwi and red bell peppers and protein. And I'm eating like crazy. I'm reading everything I can that says this is what makes your skin heal. I'm trying to sleep more. I've got to go play Master Musicians Festival two days later, right after I cut it. So I put a, th a thumb pick on this finger, and I don't have much control over it. But I just played Master Musicians like this. And we got by. You know, it was a layback show, and everyone they, it's more visual than anything. So each day I'm like, oh, God, I wonder if I can hold a pick. So two days before time to go to the studio, I take all the bandaging stuff off, and I could hold a pick. Didn't have a lot of control, but I could play. I thought, well, this is good. Each day gets better. So by the time we get to the Monday, I'm going to record Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I can I can hold it and play. Not my best playing, but I can play. But I got Russ Paul playing guitar on it, who I've just fallen in love with, and I want to go to his house and live with him. So I'm like, why am I even worried about it? And Jesse Wells is there. Really? So there's plenty of good guitar players. And I wound up playing a whole lot of just rhythm acoustic and letting those guys go to town. Now I play some stuff. Who else is on it? So Russ Paul, who's on Tyler's record, he, he plays electric guitar, pedal steel. Um, he plays some lap steel kind of stuff. He puts some 12-string and stuff on it, some acoustic. You know, he's just whatever. Jesse Wells is playing fiddle and mandolin and banjo and whatever else. Uh, JT Cure is on it, who's Chris Stapleton's bass player. And I've known JT for a long time. You know, he's from here as well. Yeah. And so some gigs with McNerlin, we would get JT to play bass. In fact, and I joked about this when I saw JT. I said, JT, the last time I saw you, we, we were in prison <laughs> because we did a prison gig with McNerlin, and JT played bass, and that's why somebody ever played with him. So those are the players, and I brought Hayden Miles to play drums because I just don't really know a better drummer than Hayden. Totally agree. Kenny comes along as a co-producer, and so that's the lineup. And I walk in with these song ideas, and the way it works, and, and I watched Tyler do this, or I would have been kind of dumbfounded by it, you sit down in the control room, Dave sits there and he says, all right, let's hear the song. So you take an acoustic guitar and you play it out. While you're playing it, they're charting it out in real time. They pretty much give everyone a chart and you walk into the studio and you cut it. I've seen guys do that charting in real time thing. It, it always blows my mind. It's unbelievable. Well, the first thing that will happen is is Dave will cut some fat off songs. And he's so good at that. Like, why are you doing this two times here? You don't really need to. And so they really trim it down to where it's just the essential parts of the song. And you walk in. And what really just blew me away about uh, Russ Paul is I had my image in my head of Nashville session musicians as being extremely proficient at their instrument. They go in, they're very businesslike, they play their cliche Nashville licks, and you're done. That's not what Russ he, – he is a creator. I mean, Russ Paul takes that song, and he goes to another place with it. That's cool, That's man. beautiful. Yeah. To the point where, you know, I don't think I'd ever feel this way, especially about a record I was doing. I thought, well, I've got to play the guitar parts because I made them up. And you just let Russ go. And he played on Tyler's second record, too? Yeah. And, I mean, he is a genius. And after every cut, Russ would come and tell me a story. Because, like, he, we're playing some song, and he does this uh, Waylon Steel player. It was uh, Ralph Mooney. So he does this Ralph Mooney like, 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 oh, God, Russ, that was so good. He goes, well, let me tell you about when I met Ralph Mooney. And he's got a story every time like that. And so I'm telling you, I was just starstruck by Russ. So the guitar playing, even though my thumb was kind of messed up, it wasn't that big of a deal. 
because there were plenty of guys to do the job. Huh. And it's a pretty interesting record. I have no doubt. Um, we we cut the whole thing in two days. I went in on the third day and cleaned up a few vocals. And it's not even mixed. I just left town and came back. At some point, somebody will mix it. And, and they're mixing it there at the butcher shop. Yeah, they'll mix it there. There was a guy named Sean who was doing the engineering, and he'll mix it. And he was super cool, too. And he said he'll mix it. He'll send it to me, and I'll listen. If I want something changed, we'll change it. But those guys got a pretty good ear. I'm pretty trusting of them. No kidding. So, you know, who knows when it'll come out. It may be the end of the year. It may be early next year. I don't, it's whatever Hickman Holler decides. Hickman Holler is the label that pays me. Right. So I, hopefully Tyler won't mind me telling this story. If, if you think I shouldn't tell it, I will, I will just edit it well, out. I'm going to drink while you do this. I wish you would. Um, so <clears throat> kicking it two years ago, Night Train goes on, and me and Tyler are sitting there talking, and I don't really remember exactly how it came up, but he was telling me the story of making the record and, Stuart Duncan playing on his record and all those guys. Um, and uh, he said, we laid everything down. And I came back when they were mixing it. And I was sitting in the control room. And I just listened to the first little bit, the first couple songs. And he said, guys, I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> he said, I just went to the bathroom by myself and I just sit there and cried. He said, my entire life I've been writing songs. I wanted him to sound and feel like it is. And I never thought it would happen. And I sit and I listen to the record and I hear me coming through the speakers and I hear these songs being delivered that way and, and getting that mountain sound right. And I just couldn't con control it. And I, man, I, I, I choke up telling that story because I, I can't imagine what that feels like. Was there any element of that to you to hear what those records sounded like with songs that you had written? Well, first off, let me say, and you're talking about the first Tyler record. Yeah. I remember when he, he, he got it done, and he comes and gets me, and he puts me in his vehicle, and he said, I want you to listen to this record. So he drove us around Irvin. There's no talking. We just drove in his little car, me and him and Teresa, and listened to that record. We never spoke the whole time. When we, when we stopped, I just looked at him, and I said, it's been good to know you, Tyler. Because I knew. I said, he's gone now. Yeah. He is gone. Yeah. And I was just, I'm much like Tyler. It's hard to believe that that little dude – Writing them little songs back when I knew him. Sounds like this now. And you're right. They took him to a place that I don't think anyone thought he'd ever go. So with that being said, yeah, when we go back into the playback room and I listen to it, I'm going, I can't believe these songs sound this way because I'd have like one little melodic figure that was kind of the base of the song and now to hear Jesse playing it on fiddle and Russ doing something over here. This big. And they take it somewhere else. But I don't really like my singing, and so the whole time I'm listening to it, I'm listening to my voice going, well, boy, if this was somebody else singing, this would be a good, this would be a great song if it wasn't me singing. But that, I guess that's just natural, too. But I, I'm not a natural singer, and, and someone has to say those words I make up, so I do it. But No, I think your delivery for the stuff that you write makes perfect sense. Well, you're too kind to say that. No, it's it's there's a character, right? And th I mean, it's... If somebody besides Laidback was writing and was singing those Laidback songs, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, and when I sing it, Teresa has to remind me a lot too. She'll say, make sure you're Laidback. Because if I sing it in the David voice, yeah. it doesn't work. But yeah. when I go into that Laidback voice, sometimes it's a lot better. Yeah. So she has to constantly remind agree. me. She's, I would agree. she say, Laidback. And I'll go, okay, I get it. But yeah, to, to hear those songs come to life from those guys' hands was something else.
And does that that kind of psychedelic Bowie Graham Parsons kind of influence does that come through on this record? Let's see. Yeah, there's there's a couple, and it's not psychedelic just for the sake of being psychedelic. <laughs> no, it's like cosmic. It's like yeah. There's nothing really that. There's one song that's really eerie and spooky, and it's just about the future and how I don't like where robots and technology are going. That gets a real eerie sound, and Russ Paul was on it immediately. He knew exactly what to do. And then there's just a straight out funk song on there that's that's really cool. But nothing as psychedelic as what Bowie is. So. Did you do songs from the first record on this one? No. Nothing? No, we didn't touch any. It's all new stuff. But it's a few songs I've been playing live for a long time, but nothing that's on the new record or is on the old record. I mean, I'd like to hear Put Me Away. That's a pretty song. Isn't it? I love that song. I could tell you meant it, too, when you wrote that. Yeah. Well, I've got another one just like that. To me, it's it means just as much to me because that... The, this one song, uh, I call it Bonaparte because Dad played Bonaparte's Retreat. That's why every word of that song is the absolute truth, every bit of, and it just makes me feel so good to sing it. And it's about growing up on Twin Branch, but it's sort of that put me away. I'm talking about the old people that had a big influence on me, my uncles. They really influenced my life a lot. So I got one more coming like that. Man, that's probably gonna hit me pretty hard. It does me. Um, when we, uh, when Tyler had the Burl show. He went and played at Pops. Yeah. Um, and Pop couldn't, t- couldn't get his sound system to work, and I happened to have a wedge in my car, so I hooked that up. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I set all that up, and then um, Tyler played this song. I, I don't know. I don't think it's even going to be on this record, but it's about growing up in church, about his preacher growing up. Man, he was singing that song, and I lost it. I, I had to leave. I, yeah. I was gone for 10 minutes. I mean, I just completely lost my composure because it's like, I, it's, it's weird to hear people capture where we're from, like the essence of it. Yeah. In the, not just the way the song is written, but the way that they sound and feel and the way they're performed and the way they're written. It's all my life, you know, I've heard about Hollywood and Tennessee and country music. People move from Louisa to Tennessee, and then they sing about Nashville. Yeah. But to hear your songs and Tyler's songs talking about Louisa, I I connect with that in a different way I ever have anything. Well, being from Louisa, and, you know, if you want to throw that broad category of Appalachia or whatever, you know, that's different from Nashville country. It is. This backwoods, foothill stuff that where me and Tyler come from, and, and lots of other people. That, well, it's something different. To me, it's got that dark, heavy thing. It does, that, doesn't it? Like we were talking about with Johnny Cash. It's a different kind of thing, but it's, it's, this is some of my favorite country music that's ever been made. Oh, it's, it's a, coming out right now. Yeah, it's a fun I love album. it, man. I love it. Um, what song are you most excited about on this record for people to hear? You got a lead single figured out? I do. And, you know, it's... There is no McGough County Cadillac on it. There's not one of those things that's quite that universal. This is super cool. The Probably the lead song we'll put out is called uh, Kingsport. It's just about playing country music and treating people right. You know, and it's a mover. It, it, it's a pretty nice little song. But I'll be honest with you, the one I'm probably most proud of is a song called uh, They Only Come Around. And it's They Only Come Around Around Christmas Time. And it's just, oh, I know that song. Yeah. It turned into something really nice. Jesse and those guys took it somewhere else. And actually, it's, listen to it in playback. I teared up. A I can't bit. wait to hear that. It's it's my favorite song on the record. I cannot wait to hear. I I when you played at the Burrow, I loved hearing that. Uh, what do you hear with all these guys on? No kidding. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm proud of this record. But now I haven't heard it in a week. I might hear it now and go, oh, my God, what was happening? How much medication was on with this cut down? <laughs> None, by the way, because I read that if you take ibuprofen, you don't heal as quickly. So That's a fact. Yeah, so I didn't take it. But I ate the kiwi. <laughs> so I see Tyler's video. I think you saw my Facebook post that I never thought I would see an animated hallucination of you out in the forest singing along with a chorus of bears. Uh, in a music video that had 300,000 views in the first two days it was on the internet. I Did you know that that was going to happen? I got a call from, uh, I think it was Ian. I said, uh, you want to be in the next Tower video? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't <laughs> Let's just, I'll wait for the next one. I'm like, well, yeah, I want to be in it. So they tell me to be, they tell me where they're going to shoot. They're going to shoot it down in Nashville, and they give me a day to be down there. So I go down there. And it's like plans have kind of changed. And it's like, well, we're not really going to film you. You know, we're not going to use your, your actual likeness in it. He said, but we'll probably just animate you in. I was like, well, that's fine. So I, I meet Tony Moore down there. Are you familiar with Tony Moore? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Tony's doing all the animation. He's incredible artist. Oh, my God. Him and Jimbo both. Oh, sure. Yeah, amazing. Jimbo Valentine, Tony Moore, those guys are up here. Yeah, that's, that's it's the scene that we have, music scene we have. You know, I've heard you say it. I've heard a lot of people say it. Right now, what's happening here is Seattle, nineteen ninety-two. Yeah, but it's it's a whole thing too. Like we have the art too, and it's and it's those two guys. It's cooler than anything else out there. They are, and you know, also you drag in a bunch of photographers who seem to take lots of photographs of yeah. this scene too. And there's a handful of them that are everything. And then you just got super fans like like uh, Roger. Roger shows up at every show. Jeff Cox. Yeah, and and people say, and and I've heard outsiders from other parts of the state or other parts of the country say. You know, that's the only music scene where the fans actually have fan pages and people know who they are. Yeah. People know who Jeff Cox is. Yeah. He's, yeah. A, he's a rock star, too. I know. It's amazing. And I hate to start naming names because you leave a bunch out. Damn it, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, those guys are just as important to this scene as the musicians are. I think, And I think Gino gets both sides of it. Oh, Gino does because he's a great performer. Yeah. But, boy, there's not a bigger supporter than no. Gino. I love it, man. He's the nicest guy on the planet. So getting back to the Tyler video. teaching freshman Tyler Childers in your class. Yeah. If I had told you that this whole scenario was going to play out the way that it did, how would you have reacted to that? Specifically that video and the whole thing in general. Yeah, I don't think I would have seen it being that psychedelic. Because when you see, you know, if I want to put myself in the place I was in when I was teaching Tyler as a freshman, you know, I know he's a gifted songwriter, but I really saw him going down more with Bob Dylan Road. He was really wordy and he was real using a lot of imagery and stuff. That's where he was. Yeah. And that's what he was writing. To see him really slam into hardcore country and then take it down to psychedelic rope, I didn't see that coming. I don't think anyone can see it. But boy, he's, he's, he's mastered it, hasn't he? And so tell me about Tyler Childers, the freshman. I knew his dad. He had, uh, was a couple of greats under me named Tim Childers. And I really knew Tim's older brother, Jim, a lot better. And I'd run around with him some. So, you know, like so many kids I have in class, I know their parents probably or what grew up with them, whatever. So Tyler, just, you know, as soon as you meet him, you know, he's, you can real quick tell about kids if they're genuine kids. And he was, you know, he was a straight up guy. You know, if you told him to go to the bathroom and not go throw a rock through a window, he was going to do that. Smart kid. But, you know, I found out he, he's playing music and he's really into guitars. He's got a little Yamaha and stuff. And so, you know, he's like, have you heard this? Have you heard that? Do you know who Jack Kerouac is? All these questions. And I'm, no freshman ever asked me that before. Like, yeah, I do, Tyler, and I'm happy you do. His parents had taken him up to uh, 
where is it the Kerouac's buried somewhere in Massachusetts? Is it Lowell? Maybe. They'd taken him to see Kerouac's grave, and that was cool. Um, he, he was getting ready to buy a guitar. I was like, what should I buy? You know, I want to get something. I was like, buy a Martin. You know, don't fool around talking to me. He's whatever, go get a Martin. So he got a Martin. And through the year that I had him, his songwriting just gets better and better and better. He would write lyrics out and, and give them to me. And I would take a moment to Teresa and go, look at this. A freshman wrote this. And we both just go, how does this kid know this stuff? He could deliver the lyrics even then. Too. Oh, he could. He... So we have this little program at school I'm involved in called KYA. It's Kentucky Youth Assembly. Did you go to KYA? I didn't go to KYA, but there's a different Tyler trip we'll talk about that we were both on. Okay. So I take a Tyler, and it's basically a meeting from schools all over the state, and you get together and you have a mock government. It's really cool. So I take Tyler down there his freshman year. He takes his guitar. And so Tyler's just running up and down the halls, and he's playing that guitar, and he's singing a lot of Johnny Cash. And about that period, his voice was, was getting deeper. So he's really squeaking a lot. Yeah, he played uh, uh, Folsom Prison a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah, that was a big song for yeah. him. But, you know, the, all the girls are paying attention. Like, who's this cute little red-haired kid? But the thing I remember the most about him is he had gotten into some Starbucks or something and was wired, and he was laying in the floor playing his guitar, and I know he didn't have shoes on. I'll never forget this. It's like, Tyler, you got to go to bed now. I mean, we're in a hotel where there are people who have their airplane pilots who are getting ready to fly out of here, <laughs> and they need to sleep. And Tyler is just uh, like he's out of control, wired on caffeine, playing guitar. And we pretty much had to physically put him in a room and say, go to sleep. And I'll, I'll just never forget that about him. My image of him in high school is he had that tweed jacket he would always run around in. And he had that thermos. He would have coffee thick as turpentine. Yeah. Um, and he would, just by fourth period, he'd be bouncing off the walls. Yeah, he, he enjoyed the caffeine. There was, um, did he, did he make use of your fridge the way Jenna and I did? I don't recall if he did or not. So I I would keep a gallon of green tea in your fridge at all times. Yeah. Um, and I had a like a thermos. I'd refill it, drink the tea. Tyler drink his coffee all day. I drink tea all day. And one day Tyler tried it. I don't know why this sticks with me as much as it does. But one day Tyler tried it and he's like, "Man, what is that? That's good." I'm like, "That's tea." He's like, "That's not tea." I'm like, "It's a green tea." He's like, "Really?" So that night he got his parents to take him to sit go or something. And he buys a gallon of green tea just like I did, except he drank the whole gallon of tea. I'll guarantee you. <laughs> and so I told him that day, I was like, Tyler, if you're not used to this, I mean, it'll mess with you. Like, you're going to be in the bathroom tomorrow. Of course, he didn't believe me. He drinks a gallon of tea, and I think he probably he probably had to go to the bathroom about every period of school the next day. You know, I really think, though, that that story really <laughs> explains who Tyler is, is he's going to experience it. Yeah, you know what? You can tell him not to do this, but I think he's going to do it. Yeah, to find out. Yeah, we we had uh, the trip. I remember was the Allstate Choir trip. Uh, no, what Allstate Choir? It was the men's choir that we had. You went on that trip, didn't you? Yeah, I, Jane and Sue would reel me in the water. Jane and Sue really, really. James was there. Um, Tyler, Mitch, me. It was the guys. I, there's a picture. You remember the men's choir thing that we did? Yeah. Um. So Tyler. Wasn't even supposed to be in it because he was a freshman. But I mean, you can't have Tyler Childers in your school and not let him in the men's choir. Yeah, but he uh, wasn't even Tyler Childers. Then. No, but, but he, he was. He was a red-haired kid who could sing. But he was Tyler Childers, who was a freshman and could sing. Yeah. Um, I remember we played at the Mac. I remember he couldn't tie his bow tie, which like clipped on. Our, I don't know why I remember stuff like this. I remember putting his bow tie on him at the, at the Mac right before we went out. But anyway, we were out in the courtyard at that hotel that every education convention is at in Louisville. Yeah. What's the name of it? Um, it's something else now. It used to be the Executive West. 
I don't Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I don't remember what it was called, but it was the same deal. It, we were all out in the courtyard, and they had to make him go to bed. He just sat out in the courtyard, but he played, um, he, he might not like me telling this, but he played uh, Wagon Wheel over and yeah, over. Yeah, he played. played Wagon Wheel and Folsom Prison Blues and stuff that he wrote, and a couple Dylan tunes. And then we um, was Adam Chaffin's in that choir too. He was. So think about that small group of kids. Yeah. So Adam and Tyler, Mitch could sing then too. You're right. And look at what Adam's doing now. Yeah, Adam's getting ready to explode. I think. Yeah, I think so too. It's unreal. So it was around that time. Tyler kind of. So when I was in middle school, Adam was in high school and I was excited that there was another music kid. And so I started playing with Adam and then I, I don't remember the details on how that ended up not sticking the way I thought it was going to, but I was excited when Tyler came to high school too. Um, cause it was Adam and me and Tyler and, uh, the Salyers kid who's a great guitar player. Justin's, Justin's phenomenal player. Gosh. Yeah. He was phenomenal. He should he should be in Nashville doing it, doing what everybody else is. Yeah, doing I remember there. Justin. Someone saying, you know, Justin plays guitar, and I remember asking, do you play no, guitar, Justin? No, yeah, he, he plays guitar. But, man. You know, fifteen kids say I play guitar. Yeah, but he played, and like nobody yeah. can do this. No, he's he he's a flat picking absolute monster. Oh, Tony Rice League. Yeah, he really is. No, and he was in high school. Yeah, and and no one knew. I mean, he didn't. No. Have, he didn't advertise no. it. He's like, oh yeah, I can play. Well, gosh, I wish I could do that. So we. We my Tyler's parents decided to let Tyler go to see Bob Dylan with us at Applebee's Park around the time of that choir trip, and I don't think he'd ever been to a big like rock show before. His parents probably called him every thirty minutes. I mean, they were worried about him, and he, he you, as excited he was about Green Tea, standing there watching Bob Dylan. I don't know, man. It's one of the great joys of my life in retrospect is that. I got Tyler and me and dad got to go see Bob Dylan and like, yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. You know, and his parents, you mentioned them, they've been so supportive of him and whatever they thought Tyler needed. They, yeah. they, they, they allowed him to chase no, that. Dream. Absolutely. And you know, it's paid off pretty well. Boy, no kidding. I, you know, I think, I think an advantage that Tyler has, you know, have you watched Springsteen on Broadway thing yet? No. Are you a Springsteen guy? I turned into one. Yeah. So one of the things he talks about it is like half monologue, half singing. Um, he talks about how he feels like the reason he was successful. He said he felt like he had to choose an artistic voice, um, and not knowing what to choose. And him and his dad were kind of estranged. He chose what he imagined would be his dad's voice as a songwriter, and he said he feels like he's been successful as an artist because he stayed true to that what he called an aesthetic philosophy. In music, which you normally aesthetics, you think visually, but I know what he means, and I'd never heard anybody put it that way. Um, but it's there. There is a visual element to telling those stories, right? Yeah. And there's there's a certain feel that those kinds of songs have that Americana kind of thing. And I think, um, I think intrinsically, when Tyler first picked up a guitar, I think he knew who he wanted to be and who he was. I felt like there's this kind of folky but kind of heavy kind of thing that Tyler's always had since he picked up a guitar. I mean, if even if you you listen to that first record that you all did, yeah, Cole's going to bury you. 
that became Nose the Grindstone. Yeah, it, it does. It, you're right. Right. Yeah, he was writing some dark stuff. He was, and so I, I just feel like um, part of the thing that he had and has is a really strong sense of his artistic identity. Um, and all he's done over time is really refine that, flesh it out, and polish it. And now it's, I mean, he's he's got this whole universe. Yeah. But I think it's always been, It's we've always been headed there. He has sent me, like, he'll, he'll come up with a song and he'll record it on his phone. And he has sent me first recordings of songs that he made up for the last two years. Yeah. And I still have them all, and it's quite a collection of stuff. But yeah, you're right. A lot of those things are super dark, super heavy. It's Tyler's voice telling stories that we can all relate to, especially from being back home. You know exactly what he's talking about. But yeah, he's he has refined it. Getting back to what I was saying, to asking you earlier about a common thread in what you like, I've always been able to hear Chico, you know, in whatever you're doing, in a way that I can't explain. But I think, I think what I hear is the thing that you like about bands that you listen to. Well, that's good, I think. No, it is good. It is good, but it's like you you can kind of hear what you, you've always been reaching for, and it comes through and laid back the same way as it did Night Train. Well, I try not to write songs that I find not appealing. Like if I make up a <laughs> that's song. That's probably good. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if I make up a song and it's just very cliched and there's nothing interesting about it, then I'm like, well, well I don't want to hear this, so I don't think anybody else does. So I've tried to write riffs or put chord structures together or use words that where I would go, oh, that's pretty clever. I like that. Do you ever get so in the weeds on something that you can't tell if it's good or not? Oh, all of them. Every, yeah. Everything you write's that way. Yeah. And that's where Teresa is such a good sounding board. And I throw a lot of stuff off her. And a lot of stuff, she's like, you know, you've hit on this one. And other things, she's like, yeah, keep, keep moving. That's cool. Yeah, she's, she's brilliant at that. She writes good songs, man. Yeah, and it's a whole different. We write completely different, but sure, she's a great songwriter too. Yeah, she's got really good sensibilities about her. I think. Yeah, and, and this is a period, you know, this is all laid back, laid back, laid back right now. And she hasn't put a record out for a while, but she's starting to to write a little bit. So I think there's. Still, is that gonna be a Hickman Holler record? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it works that way or not. We have to talk to uh, Shady Boggs about that. Shady thinks of everything. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You were talking about Springsteen writing with his dad's voice. Or, you know, was he being literal, saying like his dad's voice, or just the things his dad, he thought his dad would approve of? No, 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 no. It's kind of literal. It's like, um, as an author, you have a voice, right? If yeah. you're writing a book or writing an article, you have a, a voice in how you write. Um, and it's this guy that kind of grew up rough in Jersey, right? which who had some deep flaws and some redeeming qualities, uh, but was kind of a real American kind of story. Yeah. Uh, and I think he, no, I think he chose deliberately to write with his dad's voice because he didn't know his dad that well. That's interesting. You know, the reason I, I, I was thinking in a more literal term, because when I write, especially when I was writing Night Train, any, any song I ever wrote for Night Train, was written with Dan Baird singing it. <laughs> no, from the Georgia side. Every time I wrote a lyric for that band, when I'm sitting there writing, it's Dan Baird singing. And, and that wasn't necessarily good because that's Dan right. No, Dan doesn't know it. I mean, I barely know Dan. I, you know, I know Rick real well. I don't know Dan that well. 
but what would happen was I'd write all these songs and I'm here in my head and Dan Baird singing and they're great songs. Well, then I couldn't sing them. I mean, I couldn't do what Dan would have done. So I had to move some stuff around. But uh, to from the beginning to the end of the night train, any lyric I wrote, Dan Baird sang it. And it's kind of weird. That's cool. I don't know if it is or not, but that's, that's how I'm. Night, Night Train was an influential band on me when I was a kid. I'm sorry. Don't apologize. Um, we should get into that, actually. Um, talk to me about Cold Ethel. Cold Ethel was uh, when we, uh, so it's, it's myself, it's Bill Hammond on drums, it's uh, Jeff Rogers on bass, and there would be points in time when Daryl Hall would be playing guitar. Daryl was in sometimes, he was out sometimes. You know, Bill's a big, uh, Bill's a smart guy. Bill was really into the new wave scene and just his, his spectrum of the music he was to was way beyond what Jeff and I were listening to. Well, at least me, maybe not Jeff. He was a guy going to the record store buying some records we didn't even know what they sounded like just because he was taking a shot on them to see if they were cool. So Bill really had a lot of English bands that he was into, so we got into them. So we're listening to The Clash and we're listening to Nick Lowe and a lot of people that I've never been exposed to. So, Cold Ethel's playing with kind of an English vibe. You know, I got my Monta Hoople shirt on because of, you know, Bill yeah. turned us on to Monta Hoople. Yeah. So, we're playing Monta Hoople songs. You know, we weren't very good musicians, but we got better. Bill had a store, and we practiced in the basement of that store, and it was just this big open stone pit. And I had a 50-watt half-stack Marshall, and Jeff had a big giant bass rig, and we played so loud down in that basement. I don't, I have hearing loss, and that's probably why. Oh, I do too. But we sat there and beat it out just night after night, and we wrote a lot of original stuff, and we kind of found a voice together in Cold Ethel. We became a band. How was that reunion gig? You know, it was interesting. Um, it was amazing how we could go back and still pretty much play about everything. Maybe we rehearsed every song one time. We just kind of knew them, because honestly, that we got together almost, it seemed like, five nights a week and hammered. So that stuff's ingrained. Are there kids in high school that do that now? I don't think so. I don't think bands do that. I, I, maybe kids sit and play guitar a lot, but I don't think bands play. Yeah. I was fortunate to grow up doing that. I didn't do it five days a week, and we weren't as good as you all. But I don't know how good we were. It was fun. We become a cohesive unit. We could all start and stop at the same time with great accuracy. Same chord? Most of the time. <laughs> now, what we did in between was anyone's guess. <laughs> but, yeah, we were pretty good at that. So... Talk to me about Teresa, and then let's tie that in once we get to Night Train. And what... Okay. So you, the origins of your relationship with Teresa. Um, Teresa is a year younger than me, and so there was a period of time where I'm hanging out with older kids, which seems to be what well, I know you did that too. I like to hang out with the older kids. So there was a group of kids, Ed Cordell, Jeff Rogers, and Evelyn Williams, who all – and Della – Della Cordell. They all would hang out together, and I'd hang out with them because they were older than me. Keep talking. I just remember okay. it's time for sandwiches. Okay, you get that going. So I wanted to be cool, so I'm hanging out with them. And Evelyn's sister is Teresa. So I kind of get to know Teresa, you know, just briefly because she's Evelyn's sister. Find out that Teresa is a Tom Petty fan, and that's really super important because I thought Tom Petty was really good. And really, you could say that Tom the the – Common thread of Tom Petty really brought us together. So we get to know her. She's got a great sense of humor, but more importantly, she laughs at everything I do, like it's really super funny. 
And we just, I don't know. There's some people that you just trust them as soon as you meet them. And that's what happened with her. I just trusted her completely. So she was a Tom Petty fan. Was she playing guitar back then? No, she didn't play guitar. Uh, her brother played guitar, and she had asked to learn how to play, and I don't think she would. he would show her. So one of the first <laughs> things I did was show her a couple of chords on guitar. So because I never heard her play till you all started doing the Luna thing. I yeah. didn't know she played. Yeah, I mean, early on when we first got married, I showed her how to play, and I mean, she took to it. She could play. You know, she was a natural at playing. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the fact that I think I got her on the road to play guitar. No kidding. Yeah, and so it allowed her to create and, and express herself, and, and that's really important to her. She she's very therapeutic in her writing. You know, I write songs because I want to tell a goofy story. Yeah. She writes songs because she's got to get something off her chest. No, it's the Blaine girl, Pepsi girl. Oh, yeah. It's a different thing. Yeah, hers are, are super mean. But I can hear you doing Mike Campbell whenever you play with her. Wow, who doesn't want to be Mike Campbell? Yeah, but it, it makes sense because that's the influence, right? Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about the formation of Night Train. That happened around radio station time, or was it before that? You know, it probably just a hair before because I was playing with McNerlin. You know, I, I run into Rob. I go to a music store in Ashland called the, the Guitar Store. Mm. So I'm just hanging out down there wanting to get guitars and stuff, and there's this big cowboy dude in there, and he's playing a song by the band. Mm -hmm. And I remember I grabbed a guitar and went over and jumped in with him because I knew the song by the band, and that's the first time we ever met. And so Rob and I just sort of hit it off, and Rob had a band at the time, and he had his cousin, Bobby Lee, was playing drums for him. And some way, John Gostovich gets in the, we were robbing their own and beating the Cowboys, and Gostovich is playing bass. So it was not trained. Was James Hill playing drums? Who was playing drums? No, uh, Bobby Lee. I'm sorry, Bobby, you just told me that. Yeah. I'm sorry, I should listen. It's okay. It was the balonies yeah. distracted me. <laughs> so while we're playing with McNerlin, and, you know, all of us have this real big love at this time for Waylon. So when Rob would be off doing something or whatever, we would start jamming some whaling together. And we was all, you know, we need to get a band together. So we got George Ray to play bass for us. And, and Gostovich wasn't in the band for whatever reason in the beginning. And we just kind of three-pieced it. And Night Train just evolved out of that. We were a speed metal country band in a way. Speed metal? I don't know. Bob, Bob plays fast. You know, Bob Bob doesn't groove a song. He I, hammers a song. I thought you were an AC, early Bon Scott ACDC country band. Okay, maybe that's a better description of it. But, I mean, we'd play songs like White Lightning, and they would hammer. Oh, that's true. You know, we would play those super fast. You know, Georgia Satellites, once again, are a huge influence on us because those were guys playing country songs through Marshalls. And that's just naturally the road we went down. So I remember the guitar, the guitar decapitation um, yeah. September Fest show. Yeah. Was that, that wasn't a real 68 Les Paul, right? I don't you tell me. <laughs> Check the video. The, have I told you, uh, we've talked about this before, did I tell you the initial plan for that whole thing? No. So uh, we're going to play September Fest, and this is a big deal. This is the hometown festival. You know, everyone comes out, there's a giant crowd, you're on a pro PA. So we're headliners for one night. It's like, you know, i got to give the people a show. i got to do something. Right. So my plan was I wanted to go get a weather balloon at some Navy surplus store. I wanted to pump it full of helium. And on the last song, I was going to hook that Les Paul to it with a wireless and just let it go. And the Les Paul would just <laughs> sail out over the crowd and be gone. That was the plan. So I never could find a weather balloon anywhere, and I couldn't get it together. So I thought, well, the next, the next logical choice is I need to cut it in half with, with a chainsaw. 
So I, I, at the end of the night, we bring out two saw horses and we lay the Les Paul in there and it's screaming and feeding back. And I take a little pole and chainsaw and just rip it right in half. It's, it's, you played September Fest a couple years, right? Yeah. At night train. Was that the first or second year? Uh, that's probably the second year, I'm guessing. So the first year, I got to stay for the whole show during that one. The first year, so I grew up, you know where our farm is. Uh, mm-hmm. It's five or six minutes from town. Yeah. But it still borders 23. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah, I do. So... Oh, yeah, we talked about the sign. Yeah. Um, so I could sit on my deck. I remember sitting on my deck. I bought your CD that day. I remember sitting on the deck and listening to Night Train from our farm at your Septemberfest gig. And then I went to bed, put that CD on. on. I stayed up all night listening to that record. I, I probably probably listened to the whole record six or seven times. Well, that's awesome. And it makes me happy you could hear us from that far away. I think uh, it was. That always happens when it's like humid. Yeah. You can hear trains and you can hear the Septemberfest bands. That's super but cool. But that was the clearest I ever heard anything from September Fest. Was that not? I mean, I could hear what you were saying. It was oh, unreal. I hope we did a good show for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll never forget both of those. Yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, I'm pretty proud of cutting the old guitar in half. That was all right. <laughs> if I don't do anything else, cool. You know, when you're frying up baloney, you want to talk about baloney? I do. I thought that timing would work. Okay, so in Night Train, the drummer, Bobby Lee, his day job is he's a butcher. And that's all he's ever done. And he's a really good butcher. And I don't know how we came up with this gimmick. I'm sure it was Bob's idea. But Bob thought it would be a good idea while we played music if we would hook up a griddle and fry bologna sandwiches while we're playing. Right. And so when we get to the end of the night, then he will serve those bologna sandwiches to the patrons there in the bar. You never got any static from health department about that. Never. Never. <laughs> and to be honest, where Bob is a butcher, he kept stuff immaculately clean. I mean, he was obsessed with making sure things were clean. And it's probably a good thing. But we would always, by third set, he'd have a, a pan of bologna frying on stage. And at the end of the probably the fourth set, we'd pass out bologna sandwiches. And a lot of people were drunk, and they needed a bologna sandwich. But, yeah, Man. we always had them. I saw this thing the other day. Bologna's just hot dog pancakes. Yeah, I saw that, too. <laughs> That's pretty much accurate, isn't it? It is accurate, but it's like Pete Rose said. He said, um, a hot dog at a baseball game is better than a steak at the Ritz. Yeah. There's something, there's a timeliness of eating bologna where it's the best thing you can eat. Oh, yeah. And you put mustard on this, didn't you? Of course. Oh, it's, I mean, it's a home run right here. (laughs) It's beautiful. But I remember, I remember Jimmy feeding us bologna sandwiches at Kicking It two years ago, and I don't think I ever enjoyed a bologna sandwich more than that. It was smoked bologna, wasn't it? Was it? it? Yeah, he smokes. It's so good. He smokes it some way, and it's really good. Bob, too, being a butcher, he's real particular about the meats he used, and he would only use Cavalier bologna. You know, because I was a Cons guy, but Bob's like, no, it has to be Cavalier because this, Cavalier was made in. Is it? See, I'm a, I'm a Cons dude. Yeah. But you couldn't go that route with Bob. <laughs> it had to be Cavalier. Cavalier came from Huntington. Does he eat bologna? I, I don't know. I think he's a baloney guy. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot to it. To be a, go- a baloney gourmet. I, I I forgot he was a butcher. I always wondered about that story. Yeah, he, he was a butcher. And he drives a Hearst. So I, I do remember that. I said Hearst. It's Hearst. Hearst. It's it a Hearst shifter and a Hearst car. Got it. Yeah, and he's still, you know, I love Bob. And he's still out there playing. He hammers uh, three or four nights a week still. As hard as it, yeah, and I mean, he's playing those four and five set of night gigs. That's hard to do. Yeah. But that's what Bob still does. and I, Especially he, as a drummer. Yeah, I don't see how he has a stand on it. You know, we're not young anymore, but he's still killing it. Adrenaline, man. I guess so. And that's all he knows. I mean, he knows to go out and play four sets of nine. Yeah. I've become spoiled now. If I play more than 75 minutes, I'm done. 
you know, probably that's probably man, three or four years ago now, maybe more. I was at a gig he played, and he retired afterward. And we were talking. Maybe it was at the V Club. Those are hard gigs because they're late. But you said to me, you said, I enjoy these gigs more than I ever have in my entire life. Because I think about, I don't know how many more I'm going to have like this. Yeah. Um, and so you just savor it more. Um, and it's just funny. I keep thinking about when you said that because that was before this whole laid back thing took off and happened. And now you're, I think, in a place you've never been, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I went to see Tyler in Atlanta. Did I tell you this story? No. I went to see Tyler in Atlanta, and I'm walking to the car after the show. This is like hour and a half or so after the show was over. And I see this kid in the laid back face shirt and I'm wearing one. He says, I love that dude. And I'm like, are you from Kentucky? He's like, no man, I'm from Indianapolis. And I'm like, you serious? He's like, yeah, I found out about it through Tyler Childers. And that's when it hit me. Like this is a bona fide thing that's happening. Yeah. It's kind of weird. But I, I send shirts all over the country, and and I have people who talk to me on Facebook, and it's like they're my friend almost because we've conversed back and forth yeah. and have some common interests. But, yeah, there are people out there who like laid back that, that I don't really know who they are. It's not like kids I had in school, and that's kind of weird. I've got a level of fame that I wasn't ready for. I don't – do you know what your level of fame is? No, I have no See, idea. See, it's like when, um, when I brought this up to you, you're like, that out. I don't think anybody's going to want to listen to what I have to say. And I still think that. I, you got to quit thinking that, man. Well, I don't know. They, just, they made a movie about you, dude. Yeah, but, <laughs> but... I mean, everybody with an iPhone can go out and make a movie. Not that that's not what Zach did. But, not like that. Yeah. I don't know, man. I I just don't see it that way. I live in my little world where... you know, My world's pretty small in a way. No, I think that's good. I absolutely think that's good, and I certainly appreciate your humility. Well, I'm not fishing for compliment. I really think it. no, but I do think I think humility is good. But I also think don't sell yourself short. Yeah, but I, I know what I do, and I know there's so much people. There's so many people that could do it so much better. Not what you do. Well, there's only one laid back. I there's guess. only one laid back. Cool. Can only be one laid back. Cheers. I hope so. Cheers. Just waiting on you. Oh man, this is leaking. Sorry, man. Mm. Good. <laughs> Good work. But anyway, Night Train happened. And I remember after Night Train, even before Super Chimp, you had all these shirts, old Night Train shirts in boxes in your class when you were in the middle. Yeah. And I said, what are you going to do with these, those shirts? You said, I don't know. I said, I, you said... I think music's probably over for me at this point. That was 2007. Yeah, I kind of felt that way. I thought it'd run No, that, that was 2004. I'm glad you can remember those years because I can't. But yeah, I thought after Night Train, it just kind of run its course. I'm glad it didn't. Me too. So, but then shortly after that, the Luna thing got going, right? Yeah. So tell me about that. McNerland had always been pretty... Uh, vocal about recording a record with Teresa. You know, because Teresa had been writing a few little things along. And Rob's like, well, man, we just need to make you a record. We're like, you know, I don't know what that means. But Rob's got a little home studio. 
So he kept pushing to where we just go down there with Rob and we pretty much cut it live. And she'd put all these songs together and it's real acoustic based. And I think it's still maybe my favorite Luna record is that first one. I think it is too. And you know, Teresa isn't a great singer, but we'd never really recorded before. And she had played guitar long enough where she was a good guitar player, but I don't think she was super confident. And the way Rob recorded was, you know, he hit the button and said, go. Yeah. So you got to play your guitar, but you got one take. Yeah. You're singing and playing at the same time. Yeah. That's the way she made that record. And man, she did really well at it. Because Teresa can do that. She can deliver on a first take. I really can't. But I sat there and, you know, I'm used to playing my amp super loud. And in this setting, I had to play kind of quiet, which made me play different. But it made an eerie kind of interesting sounding little record. I have always thought you all sounded better live than the records you made, except for that first record. Yeah, because the first record were... I didn't know that. We're pretty subdued. You know, we're all dead live. So I used a compressor on my amp. You know, and I don't like to use stuff like that. But I needed some sustain. So I put a compressor on just so the notes would ring out a little bit longer. And I hear that point as day when I listen to that record. Compressor pedal? You put a yeah, compressor in no, the No, it's a compressor pedal. I had a little, some little orange compressor pedal that I used. It's just kind of weird. Uh, in a way, to me, compressors just suck the life out of stuff. They do. But they do make them sustained. So yeah. If you listen to that record, that's what's going on. Except uh, the country, the chicken picking guys can use a compressor in, a, I think, an artful kind of way. Yeah, you're right. Which is not... They're, <laughs> Not really using it as a compressor. It's just part of the, it's like an effect. Yeah. Not a, what you think of as like using it in a mix context or covering up sloppy playing. Yeah. Well, I think when I'm playing my best too, I get wild sometimes and quiet sometimes and compressors just want to make everything this way and it doesn't suit the way I play. So yeah. I don't, I don't use them anymore. What is this stuff? That's the best blue cheese dressing you'll ever have in your life. Yeah, that's a big statement. Though. It's a room temperature though, unfortunately. Well, it's good. It's better when it's real cold. They make that over at Double Dog. And I always get extra just so I keep a stockpile in the fridge because yeah. that's how I eat it. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, we, we crank out a Lunar record, start playing some shows. Uh, we start playing with Jeff Ware and Jordan Ware as a band. You know, those guys are great musicians. So we record another record in Glasgow where the headhunters record with Luna. A little bit different setting, bigger studio. But she's made some fine records, and she just writes some wonderful songs. So the Headhunters and the Georgia Satellites both big influences. Absolutely, both guys you have close relationships with now. I do, which is amazing to me. I love that. Oh, and I mean that's no joke. When I was first coming up and starting to hammer this rock and roll stuff out, that Satellites record comes out, and the Headhunters record come out, and in a way I kind and too that the Steve Earl Copperhead road came out. All that hit at one time. And I kind of went, all these guys beat me to the punch. That's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But they do it so much better. And that gave me, you know, there's a place for for country guys that want to play through a Marshall. So as I got to know them, I mean, I'm just overjoyed. How did you get to know them? I got to know the Satellites by just going to their shows. They played, I think it was Lexington, and the next night they played Newport. And I went to both those shows and stood right in the front row. So by the second night in Newport, they kind of noticed who I was because I guess I kind of stand out. I was like, hey, Rick, what's going on? He's like, well, man, don't come hang out backstage. I mean, it was just innocent stuff, and I didn't let it go. You know, I just I would follow them around like crazy, and they just sort of got to know me and trust me. And at one point, Rick Richards says, you know, if you want to go out with us for a week or something, just jump in the van, you can go with us. I was like, you know I do. And I'll never forget driving down the road in Georgia, and Rick Price is driving, and I got a cup of coffee. And Rick said, man, you care if I have half your coffee? I'm just going, 
Rick Price is going to drink half my cup of coffee right now. You can just kill me right now. Because I love those guys, man. Is that like Bob Weir asking Tyler for a dip? Yeah, snow? that's exactly the same thing. <laughs> and we were on, too. I think we are on um, US 82, which is referenced in a, in a song that the, you know, the satellites were on. I'm on US 82, and Rick Price is drinking my coffee. And Rick Richards is laying in the back mad because we're going to Wendy's or something. But, yeah, I'm just <laughs> I'm hanging out with my heroes. And so with the uh, Headhunters, they record, you know, they're from the Glasgow area. And uh, I wanted to go record a Dave Barry studio in Glasgow because that's where they recorded. I thought, well, Dave knows how to get the sound. And I think also Black Cat Bone and Angstrom had recorded there. And a lot of people had. He had been in Lexington and he went back to Glasgow, I think. So we go out there and we make our little night train record. And I guess Dave had let Richard Young from the Headhunters hear it. And so I get home and I got a, a phone call. It's a voicemail. It's like, hey, man, this is Richard Young. The Headhunters, we heard your record, man. We want you to know that we really like what you're doing. That's You're on the right track. No joke. And so I didn't let that go either. So I just hounded them and got to know them. Before I'm, you know, they're just really good friends of mine now. They're, they're, they're past the musician thing. They're just friends of mine now. Did, am I remembering this right? Didn't you send a tape to the Satellites because you wanted to join that band at one point? I think I did because uh, I I would record myself playing with, with some of their stuff, I think, and send so you know, I, I need to be in your band. I think that first Satellites record is one of the most start-to-finish, criminally underappreciated rock and roll records ever made. Yeah, if you think that they're just keep your hands to yourself, then you're, you're not paying attention because no. those guys are brilliant. Rick Richards is a brilliant singer and guitar player. Just a vibe. And they're just he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. He, he's just hilarious. Um, I'm, he's super smart, too. Those guys are so smart, and you'll appreciate this. I I didn't have a. I was still in college when I first went out on the road with them, and I remember we're driving down the road. It's like, man, what are you going to school for? I said, well, I'm go teach. Where you go teach? I'm going to teach social studies and teach economics and stuff. He said, man, uh, you ever read out with shrugged? Like, no. He said, you're telling me you're going to teach economics, and you never read (laughs) Atlas Shrugged. And I looked down like, no, I haven't read it, Mr. Richards. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I get out of the van with him. I go find it, you know, and it's this thick. Mm. So I, you know, I, I get it. And I'm like, I'm going to read I have to read this. Rick Richards told me I need to read it. And I just can't do it. I can't read it's that. Tedious. Yeah, it's like, I can't do it. So years later, man, I asked Rick about it. I said, do you remember saying that to me? He said, no, I have no idea. I said, well, man, you really shame me because, you know, you'd read it out with struggle. He said, wait a minute. He said, I've never read that. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm not going to read that stuff. I was like, oh. I love you, Richard. That's like the Ricky Bobby yeah. story. Or go through a few cards. That's what, that's what we'll do. All right. mm. I actually have a similar story to the Headhunter story. Um, so, about 2004, <clears throat> Mom had this thing like, if if we went to a rest stop, you know how they have the the brochures. The brochures. She would grab two copies of all of them. Yeah, she was all about literature. So when we were on vacation, Myrtle Beach, we went down there to play at the Pavilion. Um, but when we were down there, they had a music uh, weekly circular called the Weekly Surge that came out that spotlighted bands in Myrtle Beach. And there was this article about this band that was starting to get popular. Um, and they had a they were they had a distribution thing worked out with Universal, uh, but they were they were on Bill McGathy's label who managed like all the like early two thousands bands like Three Doors Down and all those bands. Um, so I I was that piqued my curiosity, so I went to Walmart bought their CD. I bought three or four CDs that day, but theirs was by far my favorite because they were um, 
they were radio friendly commercial rock for the early 2000s but they weren't cookie cutter they had two lead singers and they harmonized and you couldn't tell one from another and the songs are really really well crafted i felt like for that genre um so the name of that band was echo seven and um they were um i got real active on their forum because then it it wasn't all social media. Every band had their own website yeah. and their own forum. Um, and I mean, I was on their forum every day. So I heard that they were playing in Huntington. They were having a battle of the bands in Huntington. And then there was going to be this national recording artist doing a concert at Ritter Park after the battle of bands. So I, I got Kristen Moon to take me to Huntington. And I went into the radio station. And I said, hey, I said, I got a band. I want to be in the battle of bands. I was... 13 or 14 and I forget I don't know if it was Eric or who it was that was there and he was like how old are you and I was like 14 and he was like you realize the winner of this contest gets their song in a beer commercial right and I'm like yeah and he's like well you're not even gonna be illegally allowed to drink for the next seven years so I don't think you can be in the battle of bands and I was like man I re- and I knew we wouldn't do very well I just wanted access so Dad took me to the concert, and we went like two hours early. Um, and we walk in; we're the only people there at the the park, except for Scotty Maynard, who's MC. And Dad says, "Scotty," and I'm like, "Okay, what is this?" Apparently, Scotty was a client of Dad's, and they got along great. So when that happened, that was the equivalent of a pass to me. I could do whatever I wanted. So I went back there, and the guys in Echo Seven were unloading their gear. Um, and I got to talking to him, and then I talked to him for probably the next three hours, however long the Battle of Bands was. Um, and then they went out and played, dedicated a couple songs to me, gave me their set list, signed a bunch of gear for me. And I, I can't explain to you how exciting that was for me. I, you you probably know, because yeah. you had the same experience with the Headhunters. Yeah. Well, next they went on tour with Queen Shrike. Um, and I never got to go to one of those. They played at, uh, was it Jillian's in Cincinnati? It's closed now. Yeah. I forgot about that. Place. Yeah. That was a great place, but I, mom and dad wouldn't let me go for whatever reason. Um, so, and I kept in touch with, them. we'd email back and forth through the rest of their tour, which is great. I mean, why were they doing that when I was 14? I don't know, but I piqued their curiosity, I guess. Um, so anyway, um, I go to the website while they're on this, just after this Queen, Queen Strike tour and the website's gone. And what had happened was their entire record label had shut down. It wasn't like they lost their deal. Their record labels didn't exist anymore. And they had blown their, their budget on recording this record, and they didn't have any money to tour with, and they got in a big fight, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, um, we go down to the beach, and I Ronnie emails me. He's like, hey, I stopped checking this email because we're not even a band anymore. Are you serious? He's like, but we play acoustic shows for a living now every night we're playing at shuckers y'all should come out i'm like okay so we go to shuckers and then they bring me up and i play a couple songs with them when i'm 15 and i'm doing this thing yeah i couldn't believe i still can't believe that happened but since then we've hung out with them every year that we've gone down there for almost the last 16 18 years and ronnie flew up and played my wedding reception oh that's so cool and he's one of my close friends on the planet now it's like it's the same thing it's past the music but it's it's just me going to their gigs yeah that's super cool that's cool i don't know man it's i don't think kids now well, i mean i find myself saying that a lot will ever have that experience because i feel like even when i was a kid these bands weren't so accessible 
and so there was a lot of mystique that surrounded them. Absolutely. You could kind of fill in the blanks with your imagination about the kind of lives that they would lead. You know, they would record a music video in front of a green screen, and some part of you felt like maybe they really were playing those songs there on top of that mountain. Yeah. Well, I'll go past that even before the video air. So when I'm in love with Aerosmith, I got a record called Live Bootleg. It's a gatefold. You fold it out, and there's probably 30 photographs of the band. So I just sit there while I'm listening to it and look at each one of these photographs a lot. So there's a picture of Joe Perry there wearing his diver's watch, reaching a can of Sprite to somebody. And so you wouldn't believe the thought I put in looking at that photograph trying to figure out what kind of guy Joe Perry is. Right. I mean, what kind of dude is he? Right. How's it? You, you never heard their voices. Right. No. I don't know what you sound like right. when you talk. Right. And it was just amazing. And I thought, well, he wears a diver's watch. Do I need to get me a diver's watch <laughs> if I want to be cool like Joe Perry? So then when you actually get to the point where you hear MTV happens and you get to hear them talking, and it's like, oh, my God, they have voices. That's what your voice sounds like. you got a Boston accent. How'd that happen? You know, I should have known. But it's just, you're right, the mystique there, it, you feel it all in. MTV and, was kind of a good happy medium because you still got that in, in doses. And it just, to me, it's like appetizer. With, yeah. But it feels like now, like, you know, your favorite band has 30 million Instagram followers and yeah. you know what they had for breakfast and it's just, it's cool. But it's not you don't remember the Headbangers Ball, do you? I do. So, I mean, there would be people set up, man, yeah. just to get to see that Iron Maiden video because yeah. you didn't see it any other time. Yeah, right. And that's gone and it's too bad. Yeah. It's all instant now. You can do I totally agree. You want. I totally Back agree. in my day. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe I'm doing that as much as I am. It gets worse. It's only going to get worse. But I think I have legitimate grievances. No, we do. You do and I do. We both do. And now I want to go back to when I was 18 and my uncles were saying all this stuff. They were right, too. They were absolutely right in saying this sucks and you all shouldn't be doing it. So, yeah. The music didn't suck. They were wrong about that. <clears throat> no, you're right. But you know what? Here, let, let me really get... We don't need to go down this hole too far. The singularity's coming. Go as far as you want. Dude, it's game Sign over. Me up. I love this. It's game over, then. It is game over. And I don't think anyone see. Well, people see it, but we're not talking about it. Did you uh, did you read that uh, Ray Kurzweil book? I it? bought it and made it through half of it. Yeah. Enough to where I didn't need to read it anymore. Yeah. 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 yeah, I absolutely got it. I mean, it was one thing when you know we figured out how to make something heavy like an airplane fly, and that's weird, but it's not going to shut everything down. And we, we create an internet where everyone's connected together. It's weird, but it's not going to shut it down. Singularity's going to shut it down. It's almost like we're engineered as a species. Like our purpose biologically is to improve technology. Well, we about run our course. Doesn't it? it yeah. But exponentially the way it's taken off. Go through some cards. I don't want to think about it. All right. Um, funny gig stories. You know, I, the, the, I can't give you one. I don't have any funny gig stories. Horrible gig stories. You know, let me just lump them together. Just showing up and playing for people that didn't want to hear you and not getting paid. <laughs> I remember playing one horrible gig in Huntington, West Virginia. And we, I was super poor then. I mean, we were playing for money just to survive on. And I remember the guy who ran the club sat at the door with his hands on the cash register. <laughs> down like this. And I remember we're probably in the third set and no one's coming in the club. And this guy's just going, oh, God, this sucks and you suck. And he let us go home early and we didn't get paid <laughs> And I'll never forget that. That was that's probably the worst gig ever. What about the fifteen Chinese guys that live at the Mexican restaurant in Logan, West Virginia? 
or is it is it Mexican guys live at the Chinese place? I can't remember. It was Mexican guys at the Chinese place. And you played there? Or what was the? I remember that story. What was the occasion? Man, that? Hell, you know, I, I can't really put it all back together now. I don't recall it all. Was Moo Man in the story? I don't know. I was in your freshman class at the time, and you you had played in Logan over the over the weekend, and you spent half of first our first period. That well, day. I think the point I was trying to make in class is how, and this was a point where everyone was really being very negative towards people from Mexico. You know, Mexicans were just a bad word, and I was just trying to drive. These guys have come to our country, and they're living in horrible conditions, crammed into a room, and what money they make, they're sending most of it back home, and they have a great work ethic. So I don't think we need to make fun of them for anything. And they, think, were, they were happy to have that opportunity. Absolutely. And you got other people who just want to try and draw a check. And the juxtaposition of the Mexican guys working at the Chinese place. Yeah, that, that was kind of bizarre. Yeah. But now here, I will tell you one that reminded me of Logan. I show up to a gig one time in Logan. And some way, Moo Man had shown up at that same gig three hours in advance and it convinced them that he was our road manager. And whatever tab we had at that point, he had already consumed all of it. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> and he was in top Moo Man form. <laughs> but that also happened in Logan. Tim's long gone and he's still here. Yeah, absolutely. I love Mark, man. I love both of those guys. They're Me amazing. too. I think about Tim Every week. Yeah, Tim was such a free spirit, and he didn't care which way he went. And Moo Man's one of the funniest people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. He's super. He could have a show. <clears throat> so, the Bowie sticker on your guitar, all right? Yeah. So, growing up, we always talked about Zeppelin, Hendrix. Yeah. I never knew that you were a Bowie fan, right? Uh, but connecting dots a little bit, like the intro, there's Morton, there's David, there's Laidback Country Picker, there's Chico, LB. I've actually seen you, I feel like, reinvent yourself a lot since I've known you. Yeah. There's the version of you that ran for Congress. Yeah. There's Chico for Constable. Yeah, that was a dandy. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's Night Train, there's Luna, there's The Teacher, uh, and now there's Laid Back, and then there's your relationship with Tyler. Um, were you, was any of that inspired by David Bowie? Is there some part of you... No, not at all. And but you're right. There's a pretty good parallel there because Bowie does that all the time. Yeah. But for me, the the draw with Bowie for me comes during the Mick Ronson period and the Spiders from Mars, because Ronson just such a great his tone. Les Paul through a Marshall, playing notes that no one else would play, and I just fell in love with Ronson. So the whole Ziggy Stardust period, I really really liked. Then Bowie gets pretty weird at points. I mean, he goes through that Berlin trilogy, and it's just a lot of kind of noisy stuff that I didn't much care for. But now that I step back away from it, and I just see what an artist Bowie is and how he just sort of he went where he felt he needed to go, really appreciate him for it. But, you know, the whole glam thing, I love. Uh, you know, and Bowie had everyone going. It was, oh, Bowie's gay. And yeah. This and that. You know, yeah. Bowie had them all, you know. Yeah. He was taking them all for a ride. I feel like, and I could be wrong about this, I feel like that coming through you has hit Tyler. I feel like the video that he just made yeah. is Bowie coming through you. Well, I don't know if that's true, but I'll take it. It's okay to be weird. Could be wrong. Yeah. It could be worse. It could be worse. Could be driving a hearse. Yeah. Um. So, I was into politics whenever I was in, in your class. I'm aware of that. Um, and I got a lot more into politics in college once I started studying economics um, as a degree program. And then... I mean, you you read... Uh, I did read that. You read that with Shrugger. You're bona fide. 
but I feel like we've both moved the same way. Um, it feels like now things are so polarized. Nobody wants to even have a discussion. Nobody wants to listen to anything. And I, I even as ardent as I was about individualism and the Constitution and all that, I, I've always been all about trying to find common ground with people where I could, uh, even on politics. Um, but I think I've just gotten to the point where now I still care about policy and I still care about economics. I still care what's happening to the country. But it feels like I can more, I can do more good and I can feel better about my life if I can just meet people where they are and connect with them on the things that we have in common as human beings. Because to me, that feels as, if not more important in the era that we're living in with technology. Um, can you comment on that? Yeah, I will. First of all, I, I'm to the point now where I'm, I'm almost apolitical. You know, in yeah. my job as a public school teacher, I don't need to take sides. Right. When I'm teaching kids, I need to say, this is how the system works, and let's look at both sides of everything. But I don't need to say, but this is what I believe. Because that's there are impressionable kids in my room. And yeah. So, well, that's what Mr. Prince thinks. That's what I'm going to think. Yeah. And so I try to avoid that at all costs. And with that being said, with social media now, you know everything about everybody. At least you know what they're putting on there. And before, when I met Joe in, uh, in Hardy's, I didn't know if he's a Democrat or Republican. Didn't care. No, you see, but it makes now, you see people differently. Now you know every, and boy, the, there are people so passionate on either side. And you're right. That becomes the first thing. Well, if we can't agree about politics, well, we can't talk about anything. So I just they're clear of it. I don't even want to talk about it. I have friends online who are on the same side I like, and that's fine. I have friends who are on the other side, and I just don't want to bring it up. I never felt like you saw things in a binary kind of way. I, I don't. You I, know, I know you liked FDR, um, and and you felt you felt like you you benefited in your life from government assistance. I absolutely do. And so there's some sense of identity there yeah. for you, but I, I never ever felt like it was the horse race. Well, too, I'm not saying, well, this is the team, so I'm in. Yeah. No, I'm not doing no, that. No, I never felt that I way. I would pick and choose right. from either side and just yeah. say, well, these are the things I believe in. Yeah, you liked Goldwater. I love Goldwater. Me too, man. I love him. Yeah. I wish you were alive now. What'd you love about Goldwater? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, what I didn't like about him, is you probably shouldn't use low-yield atomic weapons on the <laughs> battlefield. <laughs> that wasn't a good idea. But the idea that the government should stay out of your life for the most part. I mean, on social issues, things that now have become just pillars of different platforms. Goldbard said government shouldn't be in this at all. That's that's something for you to do on your own. You you decide that. You know, that's not government's role. One of my favorite Chico stories, you probably don't even know that I know this. Well, the al- the Night Train album cover. Which one? Susie. Susie Chambers. So she had no idea what was about to happen. You don't think? Oh, I know she didn't. She told me the story. Was she mad about it? No. Good. Of course she wasn't. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. She It, it was Sadie Hawkins' dance or whatever, whatever I think it that was. picture was from? Max Young took that photograph. Really? Yeah. My neighbor. Is that right? Uh, And then, so you just asked to borrow the picture. I think for whatever reason, Tim maybe had it at the radio station. At the radio station. station. Yeah. And you thought that? Yeah, I thought that's it. That's the photo we need. So had you already written Eighth Grade Bride before having that photo? Yeah, I think so. That didn't inspire the song? No, there was a real Eighth Grade Bride. That's a true story. Oh, yeah. Probably several. I went to to middle school with Seventh Grade Bride. But there was one I knew in particular that I was substitute teacher and I knew her. And she was getting married. So it's kind of a, a little bit of truth to the song. Huh. 
We already talked about Led Zeppelin. How'd you get into the microbus thing? Well, my dad, and also known was a great musician, was a great mechanic. My dad could fix anything. So if he if he would have gone to an engineering school, he could have designed whatever. He's a brilliant mechanical thinker. So he worked on cars all the time. He worked in a garage a lot. And I just had a love for working on small engines. I could fix lawnmowers, fix motorcycles. I could fix cars back when you could fix cars. <laughs> and uh, he always spoke highway Volkswagens. He just said, you know, it's a simple design and they're a cool car. So when I got old enough to get a car, I, I grabbed one. And, and he was right. The design is brilliant on them. And I just fell in love with them. I just love VWs ever since. I remember seeing the first time I saw it was at the Heritage Arts Festival. The first one you had it parked out there, part of the car show. For, was that the car or the bus? The bus. Yeah. And for a while, VW Microbus was synonymous with Chico Prince. Yeah, I had that bus, and we uh, painted it up, put flowers on, yeah. to put flowers. We were, hippie van. Yeah, we were farm use only on the side. <laughs> and you know that bus? That's when I was playing with McNerlin, and he had booked a tour out to California and back. And he that said, was the summer after my freshman year. Yeah, you were about to go out. He said, let's take the bus out west. And, you know, we're all stupid. We don't know anybody. Like, well, let's do it. <laughs> so I, I tore the motor down, and I rebuilt the engine. And I said, okay, this thing's ready to go. You know, I'm a shade tree mechanic. <laughs> and all of us piled in it. We went to California and back. So I did something right, I guess. Is the new one, you got it going? Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually pretty good. I'm driving around quite a bit. Cool. Still don't trust it like I did the old white one, though. You ever think you'd play the Ryman Auditorium? No. Are you kidding? No. No did chance. Did you aspire to? No, not not really. Because honestly, those are where good country music singers, guys that can sing, that's yeah. where they go. I ain't got all any business there. So it was um, that was surreal. Tell me about how that felt. Uh, I've told this. I don't know if I've told you the story or not. We go down early in the day to sound check, and when we first get to the Ryman, we go upstairs where you hang out, and there's just somebody just wearing a guitar out and over in a little practice room, just loud, and it's Sturgill. And Sturgill has got a Telecaster, and he's got a Deluxe, and he's just got it turned on 10. He's just jamming. And no one's going to walk in and say, Sturgill, turn that down. <laughs> so it's super cool. And I, I love Sturgill, so I'm like, oh, God, that's Sturgill. This is awesome. <laughs> so I know he's going to be on the show, too. So we go down, we get everything set up, and it's time to sound check. And that was the most nerve-wracking thing because I'm in the rhyme, and I see all the stained glass. I'm standing on that stage. Uh, this is unbelievable. I wish my mom and dad could see this because this is unbelievable. So Sturgill's amp's right here, and Sturgill played. And I was like, Sturgill, do you care if I just play through your amp? <laughs> I couldn't believe I had the nerve to ask him. He's like, no, man, go ahead. So, all right, this is cool. So I plug my amp in, and I'm doing my little black face. No, just an old 70s really? silver face. And so Sturgill's standing right here. So not only am I standing on the rhyming, Sturgill's right behind me, and I'm playing my little song, and I'm going, I can't believe this even happened. It was just unbelievable. When it came showtime, you know, kind of when it's showtime, layback turns into layback, and I go out and play. I don't know if I care if it's a rhyming or if it's a hot dog festival. It yeah. doesn't matter. It's the same. But the sound check was really the mind blower. And Sturgill standing behind me and me playing through his amp. No kidding. That was cool. I felt that way whenever I met Miles. I was sitting on Tyler's bus, and he came and sat down next to me. He's like, hey, man, I'm Miles. I know, Miles. I'm that. <laughs> <laughs> He's the nicest guy. He's great, too, dude. Man. Awesome. Awesome. When, when I opened for Tyler in uh, Nashville, that's when he had Miles and Rod both playing double drums. They, they were that night. Yeah, so he got to play. Miles came out and played some of my set. I was like, man, that's Miles Miller. <laughs> we're playing playback songs, and that's Miles Miller up there. So it was a thrill. So I saw him, saw the name Miles Miller on the bill, like kicking it. Yep. So is he doing a solo thing? Yep. Can somebody hear that somewhere? Uh, you know, I don't know, and I get a feeling it's just going to be high on some bluegrass, and that's just me guessing. But now when you're hanging out with Miles, he doesn't want to talk about 
modern stuff. He wants to talk about Keith Whitley and the old blue school bluegrass. I've been in the room with him and Jesse Wells together, and boy, there's two bluegrass minds. Yeah. And you know that high harmony stuff. Miles can kill that. Yeah. And so I guess he's got him some sort of little bluegrass thing together. That's just what I'm guessing. I don't know that to be fact. That's cool. Oh, it's going to be cool. Speaking of kicking it, man, I, two of the most fun weekends of my life have been down there. Yeah. At, at the places like it's like that Skinner Records almost holy. It is. Byron I, Byron Roberts. I sit out and I, I mean even now I sit I listen to music that I've heard there and I I transport it back there. During the summer I'm like, man, I wish I was down there. Um I met Byron um at Al's bar. Yeah. 2014. That's probably right. 15. Um and Tyler's like, "Hey man, I want you to meet my buddy Byron." And I loved that dude as soon as I met him. And then we went to uh, went to Tolly Ho and just kind of visited with him. I was supposed to come that night. You were supposed to come. You and Teresa left. Yeah. You went to Waffle House in Winchester. Yeah, you're right. Why do I remember that? I don't know, but that was a bad move. Because <laughs> I hadn't met Byron yet. That was going to be my first time that to meet him. That was a great night, buddy. Yeah. Oh, if I'd known what I'd known now, I'd have walked <laughs> barefoot. Because you meet Byron, and I'm telling you, man, I just uh, I clicked with him, and he's one. Of the, he's the most genuine human being on the planet. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And his festival he he has is just a direct reflection of him. He's a minister, man. Yeah, he he's is. He's a mission from God. Yeah, he's delivered. He is. I, anyway, I, I th- and I think that's the epicenter of this whole thing. Down it is. there. That's how everybody gets connected with each other going yeah. down there. Yeah, it's a it's a weekend of fellowship. Yeah. Of musicians and fans. And yeah. artists and photographers and People who walk on fire and people who make wine. They're all there. People who make things out of arrowheads. So the rhyming weekend hung out with Kid Rock. Yeah. Um, and Jack White. Yeah, Jack White was at those shows. Because Tyler's got two nights at the Ryman. He's opening for, uh, what's her name? Margot Price. Margot. And I guess Margot was on Jack's label. So Jack wants to come down and watch the show. And so... The day we're going down there, uh, Tower, the Kid Rock just took a walk in the tower and said, come on out the house and I'll feed you all. So Tower's like, you want to go out there? <laughs> yeah, I think I do. So when we pull up to his double wide, and he really has a double wide. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's standing out front, and he personally comes and meets and greets each one of us, and he's the most genuine, nice guy. And he takes us into his house. He feeds us all this great food, and we just sit and talk, and he's just a very nice guy. And he's in love with Tower. He, he knew all of Tower's songs. He wanted Tower to sing. He was very a, a very big fan. And I think that just goes to show you that the characters that get created to people within the zeitgeist that we have now yeah. is not fair at yeah. all. Oh, absolutely. In either oh, direction. You know, I see, and I always thought it was a funny meme. What's the Christmas meme with Kid Rock? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Make sure to leave Bud Light out for yeah. Kid Rock. Or yeah, or, you know, and he's become uh, like yeah. a butt of a joke almost. Yeah. But he's just a super nice guy. Yeah. Really, a genuine guy who's trying to help other artists out, and that's super cool. So we hung out with him, and Tyler's gone back since several times. So they're really good friends. And then, like I said, there was Jack White, and you got to know that Teresa is a major Jack White fan. She loves Jack White almost as much as Tom Petty. Well, you, I remember you talking about how much you all were into the White Stripes yeah, right we, when that record came yeah, out. Yeah, we were. Teresa made Jack White shake her hand. Yeah, Teresa tracks him down. He's in the rhyme and trying to be off to himself, listening to Margo Soundcheck. And Teresa goes right up to him, <laughs> sticks her little hand out. It's like you know, I forget what she said to him, but she just had to meet him and, and shake his hand. And he loved her, right? How can you not love? Teresa? Uh, no, I think Jack White was a little taken. He's. He's not like everybody else. Really? He wasn't mean to her, but I think Teresa said she really felt bad that she forced him to shake her <laughs> hand, but she did what she had to do. 
I'm going to put these on the table. All right. We've already talked about these. You already. And if anything grabs you. Why do you hate that? <laughs> Here, I, I got a word to say about Randy. Um, She's probably just one of the coolest human beings on earth. And um, she's super funny. She's a brilliant teacher. She really gets my sense of humor. And when we get together, there are just things like we almost just have to say little code phrases. And we know what they are. And we both just die laughing or whatever. I've never felt any closer to anybody than I do with Randy. She's just an amazing person. Um, Can't imagine raising a boy because now she has two boys. And I watch her and what you have to do to raise a boy. I'm like, my gosh, that's hard. Because she was never difficult like that. But I'm just so proud of her. And she's just probably the greatest thing I ever achieved was to have Randy. She's just amazing. Rick, I've heard a lot of Rick Fraser sermons at this point. Yeah. One of his go-tos other than hating raisins is he said, I had two boys and one good kid. Yeah. I, <laughs> and actually, that wasn't fair. That was too country. Sorry, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and it's not that, that her boys are uber mean. They're just boys. They're just boys. And boys don't act like girls do. And it was just so easy to raise her. How does, how does it feel to you to be a papa? Oh, it's great. And there's no way you can say this is what it's going to be like. You can't prepare anyone for it. But it's really super cool. And I'll tell you something that really got weird. Is so Randy has Arnie, her first son. And we're all in tune with Arnie, and that's great. And so all of a sudden, she's going to have another child. And I'm really like, how can I like another one? <laughs> because I only raised one child, and she was the focus of everything. So now i got Arnie, and he's the focus. I was like, I don't know how this new kid's going to fit in. I don't know where's its place. But as soon as you see, and Ollie was born, it's just a whole different thing. And yeah. there's plenty, there's plenty for her Ollie too. And I it's love just that amazing. video she put up the other day in, in the, the bathtub. Video. It was hilarious. Yeah, the, and those two kids, I mean, their their personalities are so distinct, and I just love them both to death. It's the greatest thing. Do you feel like as laid back as LMJ as a teacher, you get enough time with them? Oh no, because right now when I left to come down here, Teresa and I were struggling with, well, are we going to go see him tonight? Because we, you know, we want to see him all the time. Yeah. And I don't see them for maybe a week at a time because we're off playing or whatever. And they're at the age where they change so much in a, a week. A different kid next time. Yeah, and Arnie's language acquisition is just amazing. And, and Ollie, they really change a lot within a week. But it's super cool. Well, I, I, I'm honored you'd come down here and do this with me. Oh, man, I'm glad to do it. I mean, who wouldn't want to sit and come talk about themselves for three hours and eat bologna? Eric C. Collin, what you got? <laughs> okay, Eric C. Collin. He was my economics teacher at Moorhead State University. <laughs> you know, not many of us can say that, but when I was at Moorhead, he had been hired on. He, The way I understood it, he had been in Iraq. I guess maybe he was a soldier. I'm guessing. I don't know. He said he'd just come back from Iraq, and he got hired at Moorhead to teach economics. So, you know, he's he's got a sense of humor. He's a smart guy. You know, he's really quick. And I remember walking to class with him a lot, and he was just he was really – engaging and i really enjoyed having eric i think i learned a lot about economics <laughs> and so as i graduate you know and eric moves back to prestonsburg and becomes mr ssi mr social security and you see him build this empire and the whole time i'm going well that guy was my econ teacher that's pretty interesting then the commercials start to happen and it gets weird and you know he he brought the kentucky headhunters to town he gave them a pretty good little payday to come down there and play in pikeville and not a lot of people came and they didn't advertise or nothing and he just wanted to have a headhunters play. And he, he got up on stage with him or whatever. But then things got weird, man. And I guess you all know the story now. Do you know the story about my cousin Brandon and Eric C. Con? No. So Brandon's the most one of the most talented guitar players on earth. I'm, that's not a joke. 
he's a jazz guy. He just he's got this mind that's just uh, uh, makes me sad when I think about it. Not really love you, Brandon. Uh, but when he was in high school, he had some I don't know if it was humanities class or what it was, but he he had to write a song, so he recorded a Eric C. Khan rap song for his class for an assignment. What word gets to Eric C. Khan about it, and he loves it. And he pays Brandon a bunch of money and starts using it, that rap song Brandon wrote for class in his commercial. That's awesome. So there's a Kentucky for Kentucky like long think piece article about Brandon's relationship with Eric C. Kahn and the rap song. And I you got to check that out. Yeah, I need to find it and read it. You know, you, you mentioned Kentucky for Kentucky. Early on, they, they did an article on me. Yeah. And Coleman Smith wrote it. And he's super funny, man. He, he really he's has a good nice, writer, too. He has a nice vision. And I, and I don't see Coleman much, and I but you know I got to credit him for helping break the layback mess wide open because he saw something in it early on. That and Matt Jones. Well, and Rit Mortimer, Rit Mortimer runs a TV station in Sayersville. So as soon as McGoffin County Cadillac video hit the air, I get this call from a guy saying, "Hey, I'm Rit Mortimer in Sayersville." Oh, you told me you were coming here to play a gig, and you you told me you were going to be stopping and doing that interview. Yeah, and it was you know. Hey, that really freaked me out because I wasn't ready for any of this. I thought, why does somebody want to do an interview <laughs> with me? And Rip was one of the first guys. And you're right. Matt Jones from KSR. <laughs> you know, he loves Tower, and he found out about me through Tower, and he would mention me, and I've called in a couple of times and spoken to him. And, man, that guy's got a lot of reach. And anytime I'd show up on KSR, I would be selling shirts to people on the other end of the state. Dude, he talks – He when he brings you up, he talks for a long time about you. I mean, he does segments on you. Is that right? Yeah. I need to listen to it. You do need to listen to it. And, and What channel is that on? Uh-huh. It's, I, all I know is it's on 630 in Lexington. I guess he's going to run for something, maybe. Right? He's been threatening to run for something a long time. He's thinking about running against McConnell. He's a pretty smart guy. He is a pretty smart guy, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with his, his show and his media empire because they're going to try to vet him hard, and I'm afraid people won't see him the same way. Yeah. Well, that's I, I like his radio show, and I don't want to think about him as a political animal myself. Yeah. But. yeah. Um, yeah, because I remember he interviewed you after that Burl gig. Yeah, he was there. Where, you, did you even know who he was whenever they you did the interview? Now I got to tell you, they first pointed out I didn't know. Yeah, because I, I so. you know, I love I love the Cincinnati Bengals and the Reds, and I don't listen to sports radio. I don't need to hear people keep talking about the game. <laughs> you know, the Bengals lost by thirty. I don't need to listen to three hours of them talking about why the Bengals lost for thirty. So I'm not a sports <laughs> radio guy. But man, yeah, he seemed like a cool, energetic guy. And then I find out who he is. I go, well, this cat's. I remember you said Matt Jones interviewed me. I'm like, you know who that is? He like said he's got a sports show. I'm like, yeah, it's on every county in Kentucky. Yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. I'm sorry, man. I didn't know. But I know now. And you're my favorite. I don't even know who Bill Cunningham is anymore. <laughs> he's a great American. I know that. <laughs> All right. Um, the Crown Vic thing. How'd you get into that? All right. So back to dad. Dad is a mechanic and he's a Ford guy. My dad likes Fords. So that means I like Fords. And I guess I'd always love um, Galaxies and Fairlanes, and they sort of morphed into Crown Vicks. But then you find out from talking to my police officer friends that these cars get really good gas mileage. And so that's all I needed to know. So wait a minute, you can give me a car that's going to go 140 miles an hour, it gets good gas mileage, and it's big enough to haul the whole band in. What's not to love? And so then I get to buy them on eBay, which is another passion I had. So I would buy these cars in El Paso, Texas, and fly down in an airplane and get one of them and drive it back home. So it became a sport almost getting crown bricks. <laughs> so I love them; they're great automobiles. In between the LTD and the Sobs. Yeah, you're right. See, and the LTD to me is really just a big galaxy. 
Yeah. And so I get that, and that's a beautiful car. But 10 miles a gallon wasn't really getting it. You know, I, I, I couldn't Especially then, because that was peak Bush administration gas prices. Yeah, it was like four bucks a gallon. Yeah, it was like 80 bucks to fill yeah. it up, I'm sure. So, and yeah, the Saab seemed to make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Enjoyed the Saab. But yeah, the, I love Crown Victorias. I'll always drive them. Tell me about this song. Uh, you know, this is a, a, my great... Put me away is what we're talking about. Okay, yeah. Let's understand that whenever we're all living out Twin Branch, my grandma lived with us in the house. Actually, it was her house. My dad just stayed there and, and brought his family in or raised a family there. So when mom and dad go away to Fort Gay to run the bar in 68, I'm spending most of my time with grandma there in Twin Branch. Well, her brothers all lived within a mile. Not all of her brothers, but there was an Uncle Lee and an Uncle Lindsay who lived close by. And I just spent tons of time with them. They pretty much raised me for a period of time. And Uncle, this song is really more about Uncle Lindsay, who was just honest to a fault. And he just always told me, if you owe anybody a penny, you got to pay him. And if you told him you're going to pay him on Tuesday, you pay him on Tuesday. You know, and he was uh, he was in World War II. He could sign his name, but he was pretty much functionally illiterate. But just the most honest, hardworking guy I'd ever met. And he's just this song is just really a tribute to him. Because the, the, one of his key things was, you know, I don't want to be a burden on anybody while I'm alive or after I'm dead. So, I, you know, I want enough money to put me away. That's what the old people said for burial insurance. So it's just a tribute to him and, and my uncles and grandma. And it's it's hard for me to sing sometimes. I love that song, man. Well, thank you. It, it, I really love that song. It means a lot to me, that song does. Did you ever think they'd write about you in the Rolling Stone? <laughs> no, see, that's just another thing. It's just... <laughs> You know, and all these weird things you ask me about, and I just got to tell you, it's Tyler Childers. If Tyler Childers didn't run me up the flagpole, this stuff would—I wouldn't be in Rolling Stone. He's just way too good to me. Don't say yeah, you would, because I wouldn't. Tyler makes all this happen. That's not what I was going to say. Good. What I was going to say is he could have run somebody else up the flagpole, and it wouldn't have taken on the way it did. I'm glad he did me. Me too. I don't know why he did, but I'm glad. Not hard to figure out, I don't think. But you know, he, still, I mean, people like John R. Miller. He loves John R. and he'll promote John R. at any turn he can get, and rightfully so. Because John R. is super talented. Well, when yeah, when they played in Atlanta, I I think probably the whole tour they were doing this. He was he was playing bass for Billy Matheny, and Tyler always made John go out for the encore, and John had to play his song. Yeah, he's he's one of the best songwriters I think. Oh, he's brilliant around now. I mean, anywhere. Yeah, he's brilliant. Unbelievable. But but Tyler just does that. I mean, he 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 pushes people from back home all the time amazing he doesn't have to do that well i remember when his when his record came out they were interviewing him and they asked him tyler where does this sound come from who are your influences and this is on some news channel alphabet network news channel i don't remember what it was but i remember watching the interview and i kind of expected him to say bob dylan um and drive by truckers but he said night train loon in the mountain jets and he always does that and I love that kid, man. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super cool. Yeah, because I think you, you see you see a lot of country music highway people um, have quote unquote made it, even though that doesn't mean what it used to. Yeah, but I've never seen anybody try to take everybody with him like Tyler does. He absolutely does. He needs a big buzz because he's taking a lot of folks. That's right. So there's short blurb you do in your act on this dude yeah do you have anything else above and beyond that you know jim frank and I. one thing about the whole jim frank bit is you know, i always make it a point to talk more 
and longer than what the song is. I wanted a song under 60 seconds. So I talk about it for three minutes and a 60 <laughs> second song. But Jim Frank was a phenomenal guy, and everything I say about him is true. He just worked in town. He did metal work and stuff, welding, whatever. Just the sweetest guy, just a sweetheart. And then I really found out that he was a trained musician, and you know he didn't really have to do this. He could have probably made a good living doing that. So for people who have never seen you, this is a dude who went to Juilliard School of Music yeah, and a phenomenal player and worked on cars in Fallsburg, Kentucky. Well, actually, he was in town. His garage was right in the middle of town. Is that the Comptons? Yeah, that's Jim Franks. So he would come to some night train shows every now and then. And I was like, what are you doing? And after I found out he was a musician, and he appreciated what we did, even though I'm sure it wasn't his cup of tea, he was very supportive. And just what a sweet guy. Just a really nice man. I vaguely, very, very vaguely remember hearing that name. My dad took him, but dad would get stuff fixed all the time, and I would go down there, and he always had a stuffed wildcat that was up in his window. And it was just the thrill of my life to see that stuffed <laughs> wildcat at Jim Frank's. And I'd like to know what happened to it. How'd you get hooked up with Jesco White? Well, you know, the, I guess it's during night train days, and John Gostovich was in night train. And John Gostovich was super smart, and he was always into the, the underground pop culture stuff, and he would turn us on to it. And in some way, he had gotten word there's this character named Jesco over in West Virginia. We got our hands on a VHS copy of the first Jesco documentary. Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. Oh, no. No, no. This, this is called Dancing Outlaw. You gave me that tape. Yeah, so it's just Dancing Outlaw. And, uh, uh, West Virginia Public TV putting out that little series called Different Drummer where they highlight people who aren't like everyone else. Uh-huh. And so there's this thing on Jesco. So we watched it, and just like everybody else, we learned every line and every quote. But we realized, you know, we're about 100 miles from Jesco's house. Let's just go. <laughs> so we load up the van, and we track him down. And, I mean, this is pre-GPS stuff. We yeah. had to go up some hollers and stuff, but we track him down. And we go to his house, like, hey, man, we're in a, we're in a band, and we dig you, and let's hang out. And we stayed at his house and drank a bunch of coffee and talked. And we said, hey, we're getting ready to play some shows. You're going to play at the Logan uh, Coal Miners rally, Labor Day Rally. And I, and I know the date. It was 1997 because I have it on a VHS tape. We said, we'll be your backup band. And you perform and we'll play behind you. <laughs> and we talked him into it. So we went to Racine, West Virginia. I said, Logan, it's Racine. And we played and Jesco sang and danced and stuff. And then we had some shows at the Empty Glass in Charleston. And Jesco came and performed with us there. So we got to know him pretty well, his whole family. So did you all get Jesco Fest going? No. No, we didn't do Jesco Fest. Someone else started it, but we got invited to it. And they did that in Hinton, West Virginia, for whatever reason. But, uh, you know, it's hard to handle Jesco. He gets out there. I reckon. But we got to know the whole family, and really they're pretty sweet people. They just lived hard. And I guess he's down in Tennessee now, still kicking. Anytime somebody brings him up, I always think of that picture you have on your desk. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of him and the Elvis dude. Yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. And so the fun fact about Jesco is the Beck video. Yeah. Right, loser? Yeah, he's uh, dancing on a, a table, a picnic table, for a few minutes in the Beck video. And so, you know, then they wanted him on Roseanne. You know the Roseanne story? No. So they wanted him to have Roseanne and play like the the, the crazy uncle who's going to come in. So they, they fly Jesco out to Hollywood. <laughs> And, you know, he's got some swastika and stuff tattooed on his fingers. Yeah. And Roseanne's like, well, you can't be on my show yeah, with a swastika. So they send him off to the tattoo parlor, and they turn those into roses or whatever and get him all covered up. But I guess he was, he was on the same episode with Dweezil Zappa. What? Yeah, Dweezil's on that same episode. But I guess Jesco was so unmanageable that he couldn't get through the lines or couldn't say a part. Wow. 
So the only party, have you seen the episode? No. The only thing he does at the end of the show, they say, well, this is our crazy Uncle Jesse or whatever. <laughs> and Dweezil plays guitar and Jesco tap dances for the last two minutes of the show. And that's it. Because they couldn't keep him in line long enough to be in the episode. Roseanne had, what, like eight seasons? Yeah. I need to track or, that down. I want to see yeah, that. Yeah, it was on Netflix, but she tweeted some stuff and that yeah, disappeared. Yeah. You need to find it, but it's pretty amazing. Well, you have a pizza and a beer named after your likeness. What do you think about that? Well, I, I just got to tell you, the pizza is outstanding. It's really good pizza. So if you go to Steam Engine Pizza in Urban, they can make you a laid-back country pizza, and it's great. And Country Boy Brewing makes a laid-back lager, which I think they're out of right now. But, you know, as far as beers goes, it's a pretty tasty brew. It's got a coffee taste to it because I help put the flavor together. I like coffee. Just do a paragraph. New Orleans. Okay, we can't mention New Orleans without Scott Osborne. Right. So Scott Osborne, who is my colleague and maybe the smartest human being I know, and I'm just enamored by him constantly, and you had him in class. Yeah, I love that guy. I do too. I love Brant too. Oh, they're great. Yeah. So whenever Katrina hits, was it within a year we went? You know, he he goes to the the Board of Education and said, I'd like to take a bunch of students down to do some relief work at Katrina. You went. We took how many people? 30 people. You know what Tyler said to me about that trip? No. He said, man, if I'd have known y'all were going to New Orleans, I wouldn't have transferred to Paintsville. <laughs> <laughs> He's still mad about it. Well, he blew it. <laughs> but we go to New Orleans. We we do a bunch of relief work, especially for Mr. Osborne's family and then other people we didn't know. And I think we all learned a whole lot down there. It was nice to be exposed to that culture. And it also just helped some people out who were in a tight spot. I will never forget... I don't remember where we were eating, but we all had the release shirts on. There's a big group of us. Yeah. And we were waiting for our check to come. It never came. Yeah. Um, And we said, what's the deal? And he said, that guy at the table that just left paid for everybody's dinner, which is, a, it was a lot of kids. Yeah. He found, he, he found out what we were doing. He, and we, we chased him up the street. Yeah. I mean, that had to be a couple hundred bucks. Oh, yeah. At it least. Was, that was at his, least. There was a lot of mufaladas. They were good. Yeah. But that was his thank you to us for helping out. Yeah, I remember seeing signs uh, driving up and down the streets. No thanks, U.S. government. Thank you, Walmart. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, on the way down, we went through fields of FEMA trailers. Just we parked, sitting off to the side, there. not helping anybody. And then you get on down into the city, and that's where the people and then we had it. the FEMA trailer at the really nice house in the suburb that was nicer than this one, where yeah. it was hot. And we went and sat in the FEMA trailer. Yeah, you're I right. I kind of resented working on that house, to be honest. Yeah, I know, but you know, you just saw where the bureaucracy dropped the ball there. Yeah. And, and you know what? That changed FEMA drastically. Yeah. I mean, they. I guess they got it straightened out. Are they still parking that field in Mississippi, you think? That'd be interesting to know. <laughs> it? There was a, what was the issue? Lead paint or something in them? Yeah. Like, you don't have a house, but it's better to not to be homeless than to have a trailer with lead paint, which is what everybody lived in in the 70s. Yeah. I, I mean, look at me. I'm fine. I'm a lead paint baby. Ireland, what can you say about that? More Scott Osborne. Yeah, Mr. Osborne, who likes to travel, puts together a trip for uh, Lawrence County students to go to Ireland, and I went on as a second lieutenant, and away we went. How many of us went? 14, 15? Something like that. What's your takeaway from Ireland? Well, first of all, I don't, now that I'm 30 plus years old, I, don't, I cannot imagine being as bold as a teacher to say, Let's take 20 of you to New Orleans. We're going to go to the French Quarter, and all right, everybody, be back by 10 o'clock. Yep. <laughs> That's Scott Osborne. I mean, Scott's fearless. Same thing with Ireland, but we all made it back in one piece. No, I, I, it's 
my takeaway from Ireland is it's it's easy for me to see why Eastern Kentucky, why why the Irish settled where they did. Yeah, because it feels a lot like here, it over does. there. I, it was comfortable instantly, over there. I felt like, um, and it's it's interesting to be in the old world where they have doorknobs older than our country. Yeah, it is. Um, like I was a C.S. Lewis fan in in um, high school, and um, me and Oz snuck out one day and went over to Queens where he went to school. That was weird. Um, seeing the Book of Kells, yeah, that the was the harp uh, at the library in Trinity College, um, all that stuff, Oscar Wilde, all just mind blowing stuff. I'm really, really, really grateful to to both of you guys that uh, we were all able to do that. It was amazing. I think it changed all of our lives. Yeah. Plus the Ulster Fry probably took about two months off my life. My favorite meal I've ever eaten in my entire life. Mine too. Mine too. Really? Oh my god! I've never <laughs> had anything like that. Ballsburg. People in Portland, we're going to listen to the show because they like Tyler Childers. What can yep. you tell them about where you're from? Okay. Uh, you know, I live in Fallsburg now, and I've probably been in Fallsburg, and I'm horrible at time, 30-some years. But it's just maybe six, seven miles away from where I was born at Twin Branch, but I had to move because they put a lake there. Fallsburg is just a quiet little community. Um, everyone knows everybody. Everybody's really good to each other. It's just a wonderful place to live. I am proud to say I'm from Fallsburg. We got a little school there where my wife and daughter both teach, and it's just we're a nice, tight knit little community. And I feel like Lawrence County is the center of the universe. It is. I mean, we were talking about the men's choir, and you got Tyler and Adam, but I almost feel weird naming specific names of people that are doing big things that came out of Lawrence County because you leave so many people out. It's yeah. just impossible. I mean, there's a population 2,000 in the census 2,000, and I mean, the talent there is just. Some of the best people and some of the worst people in the world are from Louisiana, Kentucky. You know, and I'll tell you what I see is, as a teacher, I see my kids who have gone off in the world, and you got the Jenna Kellys of the world and Tyler's and all these people who are doing high-profile things, and they're famous. But I also got kids who joined the military. I got kids who went to work for the railroad. I got a kid who's working for the newspaper in Hazard, Kentucky. They're success stories, too, just because they're not famous. It's true. They're not being successful. I have so many former students who are just killing it right now in whatever area it was they chose to go into. And I'm just so proud of our school and the kids that we turn out. Proud of you. You can sell houses to people that you don't even know. (laughs) Amazing. Guitar collection. What was the one that got away? Boy, there's a couple. Uh, There was a J50 in, um, what's that town in Virginia? A little town in Virginia where the... uh, it doesn't matter. There's one that I played in a pawn, actually in a music store that would just killed. As good a J50, as good a Gibson acoustic as I've ever had in my hand. I knew I should have bought it when I walked out the door. I walked out the door and didn't do it. I went back two weeks later and it was gone. Do you have any that you had that you traded that you wish you didn't? My first good telly was a 74 telly. It was nothing special, but it also wasn't a bad 70s telly. And that's back before I kept every guitar. I keep them all now. I don't get rid of anything. But I got rid of it to get something else. I'm getting to be about like that. Yeah, there's no need to get rid of them. You just wish you had them back. Yeah. Unless you're starving to death, don't get rid of them. Is there such thing as Appalachian pizza? I don't know what that means. To me, Doc's and Giovanni's are specific to where we're from. I don't feel like everybody would understand that. 
You know, I guess you're right, and especially if if you've had New York pizza or Chicago pizza, this is not that ballpark at all, is it? No. But this is what I it's know. It's good in a different way. This is what I know. Now, my friend Mike Skaggs makes treat meat calzone. Is that in the same ballpark? I don't know what that you're talking That's about. It's his specialty. He makes calzone with treat meat. What's treat meat? You know red treat? You like, know what, you like, know what spam like is? Like spam, all that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Spam is like top shelf. No, I got you. Treats. Well, it, treats the. Got it. Yeah, the step under. I would eat that. Oh, yeah, you'd like it. Do you remember Jimmy Boggs and Papa's? I remember Papa's. Wasn't that Jimmy Boggs' restaurant? I don't know. I don't know who ran it. That's probably my favorite pizza ever, but it may just be a nostalgia thing at this point. No, it was good pizza, I remember. But I, I got to say, you know, these two run neck and neck. Docs and Giovanni. Giovanni's, I love Giovanni's, but I'll take Docs nine out of ten times. Well, I like to save Docs for special occasions. Same. I don't want to eat at Docs all the time because it's so good. Same. So Giovanni's is my workhorse pizza. And when I want to get fancy, I'll go to Docs. That Man. card said Byron Roberts. It did. I love Byron Roberts. Me too. Man. That's we did. about it. We covered it all, didn't let we? Let me um let me press the button because I got an idea. <laughs> 